0: You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded July fifteenth, twenty twenty. For sale, getting the most for unwanted games, plus reviews of Bastille and Escape Mail, then Sharks, Space, Sushi, and more. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast for episode ninety nine. For sale, how to get the most from your unwanted games. I'm Sean, and live from Windsor, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Moti.
1: I am the tabletop bellhop, your cardboard concierge, the RPG maitre d', answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of gameplay, event organizing, and
0: game night hosting to
1: use for you.
0: I'd like to welcome everyone to the lobby here in tw- on Twitch. You can join us Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern at Twitch.tv/TabletopBellhop.
1: All right, this week is a follow-up to last week's episode where we talked about downsizing your game collection. This week, we're talking about what to do with those games you've decided to get rid of. In addition, we've got two detailed reviews today. Uh, First up, Bastille from Queen Games. And Family Secrets, which is Season 1, Episode 1 of Escape Mail. And in the Bellhops tabletop this week, we'll feature a little bit more on Bastille, Mackie Stack, Katana, Jaws, Codenames Duet, Medium, and our first play of my Kickstarter copy of Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy.
0: We love interacting with our listeners and viewers.
1: Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll share some feedback we received, comments on our content, maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of. We want to share what people are saying, both positive and negative.
0: We appreciate your comments and suggestions. If you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at TabletopBellhop.com and or Sean at TabletopBellhop.com. That's
1: S-E-A-N. You can also hit us up on social media. I can be found everywhere as TabletopBellhop, one word.
0: And I can be found as DarkElfLX. Up first, a comment from Definitely a Board Game Podcast at BoardDefinitely on Twitter about our Games by Canadian Designers episode. You mentioned my favorite Canadian design team at Senfung Lim, Senfong Lim, and Bamboozle Bros, Jay Cormier, but you've shamefully neglected to mention their best game, Ak- Akrotiri. Great list though, I had no idea 1812 would be on there. Kind of appropriate, given the results.
1: (laughs) True enough. Uh, Well, thanks for the comment. Definitely a board game podcast, which I am told is definitely a board game podcast. I'm sorry to say I haven't had the pleasure of trying Akrotiri. Uh, I've definitely seen the game before, but it's not one I played. But what we'll do is what we always do in this case. We will throw a link in the show notes so that others can check the game
0: out. Now, Board Game Gran also wrote in the topic of Canadian games to say, I enjoy Sagrada and was glad it got a mention. I used to play a kidified version often with my grandson. Hadn't heard of the new Scott Pilgrim game, oddly. Thanks for its inclusion. I'll need to see what your previous questions have been before asking one.
1: Well, thanks for the comment, Board Game Gran. I'd look forward to your questions once you've caught up with our backlog.
0: Up next, we got a number of comments on last week's topic of curating your game collection by calling games and how you should decide what to get rid of. Brock Wagner, at Brock Wagner on Twitter, writes, I had a flood, that's how I did it. Otherwise, I rarely call the herd. It's a problem. Ken Berge, uh, Burgess wrote to say, The only things I ever passed off was extras to new players. I might be a terrible example of purging. <laughs> Long Distance Gamers, at Faraway Gamers on Twitter, commented, This is always one of the banes of our gaming existence. You've covered some great points in this for our next purge.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for the comments, Brock, Kenyon, and long distance gamers. Uh, Flooding, that is a lousy reason to have to get rid of games, Uh, especially since most of them are probably just going to get tossed in the trash. You're not going to get anything for those old games. Getting rid of duplicates makes sense, right? If you've got extras, why not? And it's always awesome to see people who are willing to give their games to new gamers to help start their collections. And yeah, no one likes to call their collection really Though I gotta admit, when you're done, sometimes you get that like little bit of satisfaction, that whole, I have a, a finely curated game collection, come take a look.
0: Well, Robert Aronson on UMI Social had a more detailed comment. Kay. I've been wanting to sell off my relatively small collection of large, expensive games mm-hmm. because I have no one to play with any uh, them anymore, and they take up a lot of space. It's just so much trouble to do it, and the one I did manage to put up on eBay twice never sold. I'm sure it was priced about right. I only lost even more motivation after that. No one I know even wants the games, LOL.
1: Well, Robert, I hope you tune into today's show uh, cause that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. Some tips and tricks and ideas for actually getting rid of those games as well as trying to get the most in return for doing so. So hopefully that will, uh, will help you
0: out. Well, one final longer comment about on the topic of purging your game collection. Samantha Bryant wrote to say, it's painful every time we play the game again to make sure we were right about it. We think about whether or not we have better games that do what this one does in a way that pleases us better. Then we try not to grab it back from whoever we give it to.
1: Well, thanks for the comment, Samantha. Uh, there's a follow-up topic we could totally potentially cover in the future, I think, is is how to get back a game you've gotten rid of that you regret parting with now. Because I think all of us have done it at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, now jumping over to some YouTube comments uh, for things we've got in our video content. First up, Prospero Hall, the Funko design team responsible for the Funkoverse game, Jaws, Disney Villainous, and many other popular board games took the time to comment on our Funkoverse Harry Potter review. They wrote to say, everyone is a fan of something. Thanks for playing our Funkoverse game. It was created by heavy skirmish gamers, so we hope it does go beyond just introducing new characters into board games. We hope you continue to enjoy it.
1: Now, see, I knew that game had some war game roots because even in our review, I talked about it. I'm like, this is a like, really solid intro level miniature skirmish war game that doesn't look like it because it's got these cute pop culture pop figures and Harry Potter license to it and the Golden Girls, right? And I, I, I thought it's pretty cool that I'm like, yeah, there's definitely some war game roots there. It's also cool to see the game seems to have really taken off. There are new sets coming out regularly, like you can get the, the Kool-Aid Man of all things. And from what I hear, Game of Thrones is going to be the next big core set with four new characters.
0: Yeah, uh, next, a comment from a designer, this time Daniel Newman on our Dead Man's Cabal review. Thanks for the kind words. If you like the sliding mechanic that I used in the ossuary board, check out Ohm, as it was an inspiration for that bit of the game.
1: Well, thanks for the comment, Daniel. I'm going to have to check out Elm now because that was one of the coolest action selection mechanics I've ever seen. That's one in Dead Man's Cabal where You have the three different types of skulls in a row when you push them. And then the one column, whatever color is the most common, is the action you can take, but it can't be the same as last turn. It was a really neat way to do it.
0: <laughs> well, that's it for this week's comments. Thank you to everyone who shares, comments, and interacts with our content.
1: All right, one final thing before we move on. Just a correction, I guess, from last week. Uh, Last week I mentioned that fire trucks in Ontario were no longer red, and I guess I don't pay much attention because they are indeed red. I saw one today, actually, when we were out and about. Now, I'm not crazy. There was a period of time where they were bright vermilion, I think is the name of the color, bright yellow green. I don't know how long that lasts. I was trying to find how long a time period that was. I couldn't figure it out, but they are definitely back to red now.
0: A few quick announcements before we continue. We keep growing with the support of fans like you. So if you're on social media site, and we're probably there too, but if we're not, let us know and we'll rush right over.
1: I sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your email inbox. Once a week, I send out an email that recaps all the content we put out the week previous. Uh, That's blog posts, excuse me, blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews, interviews, we don't do a lot of interviews, but unboxing videos, actual plays, anything we create goes in that list.
0: You can sign up by going to uh, tabletopbellhop.com and click right there in the sideboard or go to newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com.
1: All right, next week, we are going to be celebrating, recording and celebrating on Wednesday, our 100th podcast episode.
0: We're still going to be going live at the same time in the same place, 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. But it would be cool to see a fuller than usual chat room for this special event.
1: Now, as part of the show, we plan on doing a bit of a retrospective, and we are going to answer one of the best gaming and game night topic questions I think we've ever gotten. This one's fantastic. I can't believe no one's asked us this before.
0: Well, because we want you to be able to celebrate with us, we're also planning on launching our next giveaway.
1: Yeah, so what I'm going to do is I am going to part with two of my review copies of games. One is one of the hottest games I brought back from Origins 2019, and that's Dead Man's Cabal, which we just heard about a bit in the... um, announcement section with a really cool mechanic based on all I guess. and the second is going to be the alpha this has just been released last month from bicycle cards so i got something from last year and some new hotness from this year
0: now similar to our previous contests, this will run for three weeks we'll be raw- drawing two winners the first will get a choice of these two games and the second will win the one that wasn't picked
1: now, unfortunately, due to shipping costs, uh, we're going to have to keep this open only to Canada and the U.S., so I do apologize. I know we've got some uh, Australian listeners out there, and we were really hot in Hawaii one day. I don't, I don't know where that came from. We had a bunch of downloads there. So I do apologize. So so Canada and the, the continental U.S., please.
0: As a bonus for those of you joining us for our 100th episode, we'll be dropping a special code in the chat that will get you a
1: large number of bonus entries. We haven't decided yet. It's going to be like 20, but I'm thinking of making it like here. You guys who join us live, you folk who join us live, get like a hundred bonus entries just for joining us during that episode. We're strongly considering that hundred. If it's not a hundred, I'm going to think 20 or so. All right. Also, uh, we got another big, uh, arbitrary number coming up and that is our two year anniversary Uh, that is going to happen I forget the exact days like the 26th or the 27th it's in there and but we're going to celebrate on the 29th of July now the 29th of July is also the last Wednesday of the month so it's going to be an AMA episode so that, to me that works out pretty good because we can be more relaxed about our content so I think we'll be able to celebrate that then we'll get out more words about the um the giveaway at that time too
0: so if there's anything you want to ask us about uh, doing n- this uh, now two years in, that is the episode to do it.
1: Yeah, if you want to know anything about what we did, what we started up, what we've done right, what we've done wrong, if you got any questions, that'll be the episode. That, that's the one I, I want to hear, like, podcast questions.
0: Yeah, yeah, whether, you know, the the tech setup, processes, whatever... Like what's
1: changed, what we've done, what we've learned. Those are the kind of questions I'm looking for. We'll still answer anything, but I'd like to get away from the usual game game night stuff and maybe even answer some questions about Sean and I, something about the show, anything you've always wanted to ask. That'll be the episode to do it.
0: Well, we're here to answer your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. Social media works too,
1: we are everywhere, as Tabletop Bellhop one word. Now the best way for questions to come to us is through the website. We're not gonna say no to a question asked anywhere.
0: Today we've got a question from longtime fan of the show, Yuho Rutila. Hi Mo and Sean, I think this situation comes up every in every gamer's life. The board game shelf is full and significant others starts to hint that you can make space on the shelf by selling some of the hard collected games. How do you go choosing the games to let go Is it the time since last on the table or the overall time on the table? Should I still spare the gem that gets played too seldom or how about games with personal bond or a signed game from a designer? Where do you sell your used or even shrink-wrapped game? Friendly local game store, eBay, Facebook, other places? How do you decide the right price for the game? What if it's a collector's item? How do you find these things out? Any hints on the topic are welcome as I am facing this very problem at the moment. Cheers, Yu-Ho. All
1: yu right, Yu-Ho, we're going to try to hook you up here. So today is actually a follow-up to last week's topic, where we answered the first part of yu question, which was in regards to choosing what to let go of. Now, if you haven't checked that out, you may want to go give that a listen before continuing this episode, since this is a follow-up. Don't worry, we'll wait. All right, time's up. You missed your chance to get, we're moving on. Now that you've taken the time to figure out which of your games you want to get rid of, and you got a nice stack of games to clear from your collection, leaving you with a shinier, tighter, more streamlined game collection, it's time to talk about how to get rid of those games. Now, what I think I want to focus on the most here tonight, because I think this will be the most value for people, is on where to sell or trade your games with the goal of getting the most in return for them. This will include a look at how to value your games
0: and set an appropriate price. To help us out with that, we've got a special guest on the show tonight, and she Games, Deanna Tuziño, will be joining us. She has a lot of experience valuing games, both from our Extra Life Auctions held every year, as well as running a small business selling retro toys and games. Welcome, Deanna. Hey guys. So before
1: we get into valuing game, I first wanna talk a bit about where to look to sell your games. What are the best places you found over the years to try to get rid of geeky items? Like, games.
2: Okay, well, the first thing that comes to usually is eBay. Um... And in the- so the thing with eBay is you don't want to just go in cold and start selling stuff because no one's going to buy off you. You want to build up an account. You want to have some feedback and you want to um, purchase some items first, just so you experience the environment. You know what the heck's going on. So that's a good way to start. Uh, another place that you can sell online is Amazon. Amazon mm-hmm. allows you to sell new or used on- in toys and games. So uh, I think they listed as collectibles for used items. Um, Now, I haven't sold on Amazon in about seven years, and when I did, Ah. it was on .ca. But I was looking into it, and they added a new thing where there's a limit... To be able to sell during the holiday season, if you don't already have enough feedback built up, you won't be able to sell during certain times of okay. the year. And also, again, you want to have a, uh, an account on there and maybe just put out some cheaper items, some less valuable items to build up feedback. You're not going to get feedback from buying on Amazon, only from, from selling, whereas eBay, you're going to get it both ways, right? So... Um, that's two places. And then there's also for online, there's the Board Game Geek Marketplace, which Mo knows a lot more about than I do.
1: All right. So the best thing about using Board Game Geek is that you are selling games to gamers, right? Board Game Geek is filled with uh, alpha gamers, right? People who take the time to make a Board Game Geek account, take the hobby very seriously, right? And the people on Board Game Geek know what games are worth. And because of that, they are willing to pay premiums for things like out of print or rare games or collector's items or signed copies. Now, the bad thing about Board Game Geek is that they're gamers and they care a lot about their games. Because of that, they're very picky in regards to the conditions of the games they're buying. The thing is, on their marketplace, you do get to specify the condition in your listings. The thing is, on Board Game Geek, like, seriously, be as clear as possible. Every little scratch, every fold. If you have a shrink-wrapped game and there's a tear in the shrink, make sure people know that. Now, as long as you commit and give all that information, you're not going to have a problem. But just realize that many of the board game people searching the board game keep marketplace are collectors as well as gamers, and are looking for collector level items.
0: And that's actually a really important thing, both uh, on BGG marketplace and as d said on eBay and Amazon, is uh, having some uh, sort of standing. Right, if if you're a newbie on BGG. No, no one's going to take you seriously. And the same with eBay and the same with Amazon. Uh, unfortunately, if you're just trying to get rid of the your first game for the first time, no matter where you go, you are going to have more difficulties on those kind of sites.
2: Yeah, you can't just go in and be like, hey guys. I got this copy of Fireball Island. Want to buy it for 160 bucks, and it's the first thing you've ever listed? No one's going to pay attention to you.
1: Yeah, it's definitely unlikely, which may have been the problem with the... Um, we had a question earlier, who noted, what do you do if... Um, the the person who had noted they tried to sell a game multiple times. Mm-hmm. If that was the first thing they ever tried to list it, that could have been the problem. You
2: might want to start with some lower like ten dollar value items just to build up feedback. And then what Mo said about condition, it's important on eBay too. I find yeah. gamers in general, people that are buying games, are going to be super picky. It's a, a character trait apparently. Yes. So you know, make sure you describe it very clearly, exactly what's there and exactly what state it's in. Or else when people get it, they're going to be unhappy, and then you're going to get negative feedback. So. Um, But with all of the above, when you're selling online, you have to consider shipping, which can be a pain in the butt. Uh, So you're going to have to parcel it up, take it to the post office, get it weighed, find out how much shipping is going to be so that you can put that in your eBay listing accurately. Uh, Amazon, I think, estimates a shipping amount on its own. Um, But then on top of that, you have to worry about insurance and potentially missing parcels. You, know, you might have bad actors that claim that they haven't gotten stuff when they have, or things can just go AWOL. So, I mean, that's all stuff you have to worry about when you're selling online. So then sometimes you're better off just selling locally, right? So you've got Kijiji for local, you've got um, Facebook groups now are really great. Locally, we have um, a couple of good uh, uh, groups where you can do buy and sell for games. And in all of those, I find that if you list multiple items for the, it's true online too, with, with um, eBay, but even more so for in-person uh, trades, if you list multiple items, it's better. If you, if you put four or five games up all at once in that buy and sell group, then someone is going to contact you and say, hey, I want to get all three of those. It's worth your time more to go out to McDonald's and meet that person if you're doing it all in one go. It's just better if you're going to do it, do it all at once. And then the last one is uh, your FLGS, if you're lucky enough for them to offer consignment Or maybe they'll buy directly off you for resale. Um, That's another good option for local.
0: So unfortunately, a lot of FLGSs don't handle consignment. And so that may be a limiting factor. It can be a great option if it's there, but it may not be an option at all. And uh, you want to make sure you're aware of uh, how they handle things. Because if they're just doing it for the heck of it, they may not be willing to get you a decent deal or or give any effort to... uh, put in put into selling your game and it might just sit there forever not making you any money even though it's off your shelf
1: the other thing, too, is some local game stores, especially when you get into uh, non-board game items, might be willing to buy things like Magic Cards, right? The collectible cards, uh, Pokemon cards, Hero Clicks, any of the collectible stuff. Um, keyforge decks. Local game stores are often willing to buy that stuff. And the other thing is check your local comic book store, especially with the, the Hero items. Like Hero Clicks often sell there. And some of the kids' cards games, like they may not do Magic, but they might do um, Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh!
0: And Ryan's noticing that uh, Board Game Bliss offers local consignment uh, and you know. things as well. So,
1: all right. So now that you know where you want to try to sell your game or games, what's the best way to try to find a fair price? What where do you list them at? How do you how do you have any idea how much to ask for these games? Because I'll say one thing: you don't see is it almost never works where you just go make me an offer. It seems like as a seller, you pretty much have to put that out first.
2: Well, again, the first thing you want to consider is what condition. Your used game is not going to be worth uh, a new and sealed copy that's still in print, right? Is it is it available? Is it still in print? Can you go out and easily buy a new copy? Um Now, you can figure out the MSRP on a game by looking at a site like BoardGamePrices.com, which aggregates pricing from several online stores. And you can click through and look at a couple different online stores, and then you can go, oh, okay, so I know the MSRP on that's $50. And about half of MSRP is a good rule of thumb for a used game, unless it's out of print or rare. Even if it's new and sealed, no one's going to want to pay full retail, again, unless it's out of print, right? So you got to plan to knock at least 5 or $10 off the price from the MSRP, even for a brand new game. Now, when you're trying to figure out prices for stuff that might be out of print, the first thing to keep in mind is Amazon is not a good source for that information, <laughs> because third-party sellers can just put whatever... Crackadoodle idea they have, they can say, Oh, I've decided that this game is $300. And it doesn't mean that it's selling for that much. It just means that someone decided to list it for that much. Yep. And the same can hold true at eBay as well, which is why I'll get to that in a second. But Amazon is particularly bad for just having wacky prices. So just ignore that for trying to sell, for trying to set uh, what dollar value you want to use. And then you can look at eBay. Again, this is your prime area to look for uh out of print items or new and old, rare, whatever. What you do is you go in and you look at sold items on eBay. Um, you go into the left-hand sidebar, you scroll down until it says show only, and you check off completed items, and that will give you the data on what was sold and unsold. Don't check off sold items. that will only show you what was completed and sold. You want to see both so you get a good idea, and that info will go back for 60 days worth. Now, there are sites out there that will let you see the historic data for more than 60 days. And if you have something that's rare, that when you're looking it up, you're not finding enough examples to get a good idea, it might be worth it. Um, but most of those you have to pay for to use those mm-hmm. sites. Uh, a third-party example is WorthPoint. And I think there's a free seven-day trial you can use, so that might be enough to get you by. Or eBay has an in-house program now called Terra Peak which is available for free if you have a store with them for certain levels of sellers. Um, So basically, you scroll through, you look at the completed items, you get an idea of the average selling price, and again, you have to make sure it's in similar condition to yours. Your well-worn copy of the Dark Tower, which is missing all but one flag, is not (laughs) going to be worth the same amount as a pristine copy with all the pieces, right?
1: All right, so... Looking at the BoardGameGeek marketplace, this is another place that, besides being a place to sell games, is a great place to see the current going marketplace, the current market price. Because as I mentioned earlier, the people on BoardGameGeek know what games are worth and are usually willing to pay for those games. So this makes it a great place to shop for the prices that gamers are willing to pay. Now, the marketplace when you go to, it's really simple. You just look up the game and you can see the, the, the basic marketplace that shows like the top five items. You can click on it and get the detail and you'll see all the available copies of the game for sale by country. Including then if you click through, you can start seeing the, uh, the condition and the current selling price. The one uh, problem with this is that there's no history, right? So you can only see what's currently listed up for sale right now and what people are asking for now with no actual indication what's been sold. So you might bring up, um, whatever, Fireball Island, and there's seven copies for $400 because everyone just set their price over the person above them. And it ends up, no one's actually bought a copy for 700. So you don't get that information, but generally the Board Game geek users don't do that. And if you do see it, you'll bring it up and you'll see that one price that's usually crazy high and the rest are all pretty much around the same area. Now, this is where there's a site called Spielboy. If you go to Spielboy, this is a board game pricing utility that's ugly as sin, I will admit, that shows you historical pricing data on games listed in the Board Game Geek marketplace. So that is your best bet, is you find the game on Board Game Geek, you look in the marketplace and bring it up on Spielboy and you get all the history to see every copy of that game that's sold on the Board Game Geek marketplace since the beginning of time. And that is probably your best bet for finding a price, because again, most of the people on BoardGameGeek Geek know the values of the games, or if they, they're the honestly, the people who are probably setting the values of the games. They're the ones setting the current market price.
0: Now, one thing you do need to be aware of, uh, if you're if you are pricing things on BoardGameGeek, Geek, these are gamers; these are not real people. Um, so, if you're going to be selling to your local Kijiji market, there may only be a couple of gamers in the area who are willing to pay gamer prices. Uh, your average Joe on the street is probably not going to be willing to pay collectors prices, even if that's what the game may be worth to collectors. So you have to be aware that your marketplace where you're selling may, you know, determine some of that pricing. Even if you know that, that, you know, sealed box, uh, wow, should be worth $300. Joe down the street isn't going to pay that.
1: We've definitely seen that uh, with something we'll be getting to later with is one of the alternatives for selling games, which is to auction them, where we will have a $300 game go for like 20 bucks because just no one cares that it's a collectible game. They're just like, hey, I spent 20 bucks, I got a cool game.
2: If no one wants it locally, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. And that's not even locally, right? Like that's part of the problem with all of this is it is a free market and fair market value is going to be based on supply and demand. If... There's a ton of people selling the same game as you right now. You're probably not going to get good money for it. Whereas if there's very few copies, there's a better chance you can charge a bit more.
2: But I strongly feel that it can be worth um, making less money and selling it locally because there's that pain in the butt factor. Because you can get the best dollar by by selling it on eBay, maybe, but it's going to take up the most time going back and forth and email answering questions. You have to pack it up. You have to take it to the post office. You got to worry about those missing parcels. And so when you're building your price locally, you can tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna go a little bit lower than that. Also, eBay's gonna take off a a chunk of commission. Uh, PayPal's gonna take off a chunk of commission. You sell it to a guy on Kijiji and they go give you 50 bucks at uh, McDonald's, nobody's taking a percent off that. So Mm -hmm. you you gotta factor that in too, right? So um, back to when you're coming up with your prices, uh, some items have straight up uh, price guides when you're thinking of magic cards, collectible cards... Uh, The site that at least the local stores use is tcgplayer.com. So that covers like your Pokemon, Magic, pretty much any CCG you can think of. They use the median prices on there when determining what they might pay you if you're going to go in and sell cards.
1: Yeah, from what I understand, that's pretty much the standard, at least in Canada. I don't know if this is true in the States, but at least for Canada, that is the site that everyone uses. And they do that so that they don't have to compete with each other like honestly if the, the we have two local game stores that are are i don't know about 10 steps away from each other which is a little ridiculous and they both use the same pricing guide so you go to the store you prefer you're not going to get a better deal at one than the other in general so
2: again that, that factor that it might be more convenient for you to sell locally means you, you might pick a price that you're willing to settle for a little bit less, but then when you go to list that on Kijiji or Facebook, you're probably going to want to put a little padding there because people are going to want to barter you down you're going to say, I want $50 for this item, and they're going to say 40 every time.
1: Yeah, Facebook is terrible right. for that. No
2: one's just going to say, okay, cool, 50 bucks. Like, that almost never happens. So, if you know you really want $40 for the game, ask for 45 or 50 Be prepared to haggle. Again, you're likely listing a bunch of items at once, and someone will say, hey, if I buy 40 mm-hmm. off, if I buy these four items off you, will you give all of them to me for $100? And you can say no, too. Like, don't be afraid to say no and to barter back and to say, yeah the lowest i'm willing to go is x and have that lowest price already in your mind um and then back online on ebay it's a little bit different if you're setting the opening bid on ebay you might want to take a chance and go a little bit lower than the minimum you want because you're hoping to bid build interest and that folks will bid it up so i mean you can play it safe and you can start your opening bid right where your minimum price is or you can cut yourself a bit below that, and then you might find that you actually make a bunch more money. It's
1: your call. Yeah, the biggest thing on eBay that you want to do is you want to spark a bidding war. You want two people to want that item, and then they start going against each other, and then they stop looking at other items and comparing prices anymore and only care about beating that other person. That That's what you're hoping to have happen, which can happen by starting.
2: If it's low enough. If your yeah. price is just right, people will probably just snipe it. Yeah, right. They'll just come in a bit at the very last second and the, they'll be willing to spend 20 bucks on it, whatever. But if you know it's worth 20 or 30 dollars and then instead you set it for 12, well, you might get that that added interest. But you're taking a chance. It doesn't yeah. always pay off.
0: Yeah. And one of the things you need to, to pay attention of and, and he touched on this earlier about, you know, condition of things, especially. But when it comes to Kijiji or eBay, there will be people who will pester you to no end about every detail and aspect of that product. They want to know if, hey, can you, th- you, you didn't take a picture of this particular angle and I saw a, a a version of that product once that had a little bit of flashing on it and does yours have that or not? And be aware that there is an uh, element of time that you need to sort of put aside to deal with people like this, um, unless you're willing to just sort of shut them down and, and completely ignore that avenue of sale. But there are a lot of people out there, both on EG, uh, eBay and market, who will want to come. Or, you know, if it's local, uh, can we come by and look at that? I want to double check mm-hmm. and see if that's really this and that. And, you know, there's a whole lot of hassle involved um, you, it's it's much like running a, a yard sale, right? There's all these people who mm-hmm. want to waste your time without necessarily even ever planning to buy the item.
1: And that's probably one that, that this is intentionally not on our list. You do not want to sell your stuff at a yard sale unless you're just like getting rid of it. Like you don't care. Like it, it, instead of throwing it out, maybe. If it but... was in
0: the flood then yep. you can put it in the yard put sale. Put it in
1: the yard sale. Like, like, we've tried it, right? Like, I tried to sell collectibles at yard sale, and we can kind of get away with it if you have, like, the one table of collectibles. But even then, people are going to walk up to your $50 item and go, I'll give you a nickel. Like, it's that bad.
2: Yeah. And you got to keep an eye on it because if it's new and sealed, they'll try and open it. I've yes. had that happen at yard sales. I. Yep. I I just about passed out. I'm like, get your hands (laughs) off that.
1: And people like to walk away with the collectible items because you highlighted them as collectible, which is unfortunate. So, yeah, we do not recommend selling anything you actually want to get something value for, not at yard sales. If you got some junk to get rid of, sure. Alright, so, so far tonight, we talked about selling your unwanted games, but there are other options. Uh, One I particularly like, and often do myself, is trading my games for other games. Now, this is a great way to both grow and curate your collection, while trying to keep the overall size down. Now, here are some places you can do this at, that I've found uh, work really well. And the First, again, we're going to go back to Board Game Geek. Again, you go where the geeks are, right? You go where your market is. It's a location, location, location thing. Uh, We've already talked about this as a great place to figure out the value of your games, but it's all as an, also an option for selling. But one of the other features is you can go into your board game collection or into any game, whether it's marked as you own it or not, but you can go through their entire collection, the entire database, and just click for trade on anything you own that you're willing to trade with. And similarly, you can go in and go want and trade and click on a bunch of different games. And then from that, you can go to a game and click who wants games and trade. So if you have a game to get rid of, go on Board Game Geek, find that game, click on Want and Trade, and there is a list of people who want to trade you something for that game. Now, meshing those two up is a bit of an artwork, but it is a way to find people who are looking for your game and sometimes those people might even be willing to buy it right so this might also be a way to find someone who's just going to buy it outright now another interesting feature now this is something we hadn't really talked on earlier in the episode is instead of selling a whole game but selling a game for bits right selling parts and this is a great way to get rid of components you have from incomplete games like if you got a copy of hero quest it's worth a fortune but if you just happen to have the doors from hero quest those can be worth some money so if you You go on board game geek. There are two more things you can click off, and one is has parts, and the other is wants parts. So this is a great way to get rid of those leftover bits. So if you did have the flood, instead of throwing out the whole game, separate what's damaged from what's not, and then you can go on board game geek and look and see if anyone wants the parts from those games.
2: Yeah, that's totally viable. I have made tons of money on eBay breaking games down and selling them by bits. I, I would wait until I tried to get like the full game, but if that didn't pan out, you can sometimes make more money. By selling them piecemeal.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily recommend doing that, but yes, you could go buy a complete game and take it apart and sell the bits and make money in some cases. It has
2: to be out of print or something. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, locally, Facebook has been fantastic for trading games with local gamers. Uh, there are two very. Active local groups just for Windsor, Windsor Essex, really. So it goes out to the county, and I got to say, Windsor's not that big, right? So uh, just just with the, the the law of averages or whatever law of large numbers, I don't remember which law it is, but the fact that we have two here means probably most places have a Facebook group. And not only that, there's a Canada-wide board game buy, sell, and trade group that I see people in all the time. And then I know there's a board game group that actually does trading the world over. I don't get that involved in that one because again, shipping is a pain in the butt. But... What I would do is stage. I would start locally and I would post my games there for a week or a month. And then I would move up and go, okay, how about anywhere in Canada? Someone want this? Okay, anywhere in the world want this game. And again, you got buy, sell, and trade. Now, once you get a trade, it's just a matter of talking to someone in Facebook chat, right? You just bring up Messenger. It's like, hey, I've got this. What do you have? What do you want? Now, cons are another great way to trade games and, and get new games and get rid of your games. And this can also be even just smaller gatherings, not necessarily cons. So pretty much every con, uh, I'll admit I'm not a huge con goer. We only really recently started our con journey about five years ago, but every con I have been to has some form of trade system or barter system a trading room uh, a rare game auction or something something you can put your games into to get rid of them now locally game stores often set up trade nights. And I noticed even uh, Pennywise in our chat was talking about how their local store has done this, where they have a trade night where people can get together. We try to do these, we're trying to do them once a quarter before the whole pandemic thing hit. And we mix it up between board games and RPGs where we let people just trade their stuff, right? Uh, I think this is really cool. So one of the things you can do is check your local gaming meetups and see if they offer anything like this. Or if you have a local group that gets together, like a Tabs or a, or, or something like that, like a, a meetup group that gets together regularly, ask, like, hey, why don't we have a trade night sometime where we can swap our games, have, have some kind of swap meet?
2: Yeah, and Mo came up with a pretty cool system where instead of people putting all their stuff out on the table and just trading items, we traded everything in for uh, coins, basically, right? Like yeah, tokens. Uh, po- poker chips, tokens. So, you know a uh, core book is worth X, a module is worth X, because we did it with our PDs mostly. Yep. And you would get your pile of tokens, and then we would roll to see who had initiative, and you would take turns picking what you wanted off the table with your tokens. And that was a neat way to be able to trade up and not have to, you know, Sally didn't have to get it off of Dave kind of thing.
1: Yeah, well, it, well, it helped a couple issues. So one of them, you didn't know who you were trading off of, because that may matter to some people. And second, you didn't worry about the exact value of your game. You weren't worried about that. My player's handbook's worth $50 and yours is only worth $20. So I also need a $30 item. It was, you know what? It's a board game. Board games are worth five tokens. Small box games are worth two tokens. And card games like Uno or whatever are worth one token. And you spend five tokens, you could get five card games. or you spend five tokens, you get a board game. A board game's a board game. Say like a ticket to ride size box. Maybe you have the $10, 10 token Eclipse phase or uh, Eclipse or Twilight Imperium level or whatever. And like I said, for RPGs, it it was, it was um, splat book module core book was basically how we split it up. And so we didn't have to worry about the fact that the Pathfinder book's 900 pages long and the, well, we'll actually use Eclipse phase this time is only 300 pages and their MSRPs are actually quite far apart. It was, here's one hardcover rule book for another hardcover rule book. It worked out well. Now, speaking of cons and get togethers and trading, one of the things that is the best, and I guess a, a, probably the most efficient way to get rid of games replacing them with games you want is a math trade now this is uh the basics here is that a group of people decide they all want to trade games and they use a specific piece of software to create a list of all the games they're willing to trade away and you just go in and you select them all and it's tied to board game geek so you go in and you pick all the games you want to get rid of you're like here here's all the stuff i'm willing to get rid of and then once everyone's done that there's like a certain time period for everyone to put in their games Then everyone gets the list, and now it's a list of everything that everyone's put in the pile, we'll say. And you start going through, and you're like, Ooh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And then there's an extra step where you go, Well, you wanted this. What are you willing to trade for that? So you go back to your initial list, and you do this little pairing off thing where it's like, Well, yeah, I wanted a copy of that, and I'm willing to give up this, 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 or this for that. And then you sit back and relax while everyone else does that. And then The moderator, whoever's running it, runs the software. Now, I honestly have no idea what goes into this back end. It's math doing stuff in the background. But the end result is that you end up trading your stuff. So once the software does all its stuff, it's going to set up a ton of trades. And the interesting part is it'll be with a bunch of different people so that everyone gets stuff they want. So, for example, I might trade something to Deanna, but end up getting something from Dave. Whereas Deanna is actually getting two things from Sean and Dave's getting something from Tom, but like, it all works. Like the, the software did the thing. I just, I give up the games I want and I get the games I wanted in return.
2: It's a more complex version of the token
1: system. In, in a way yes
0: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's where the where the tokens were a little more arbitrary in the math trade system there there's real values applied to, yeah there's real values. because you
1: can literally say like i only want this game if i give up this for it mm-hmm. but the weird part is i might not get this game for that directly right that's where the math trade comes right. in like sean may have actually gotten this and and sean might have given up three games to get that but i end up getting something like it's 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 funky it's it's I've finally done one. I've now taken part. We only had about 12 people. So there wasn't a lot. But like, you know what? I got rid of three games and I got two games I really wanted. And, and like I said, it's you get what you want. Like you, you you have complete control over what you let go and what you get in return. Without any bartering. There's no interaction with these people, which is, I got to say, at times an added bonus.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and sometimes that can be that can be the, the, the real thing because you're avoiding, as long as you're up front and, and, and clear about everything, yes. you're avoiding a lot of that haggling hassle mm-hmm. that you've, you run into on your Kijijis and your Ebays and your Facebook. People aren't haggling over prices. They aren't questioning about every little detail. It's mm-hmm. just they're looking for what they want. You're looking for what you want. And the software does the rest. You don't yeah. have to. It doesn't matter whether Jane and Bob are idiots or, yeah. you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're going to get what they want. You're going to get what you want within the limits of the software.
1: Now, the one thing I don't know about Matt Trades is what you do when something goes wrong. Like, I honestly have no idea. So I, I like, it, hey, say I got the game and it was missing a piece. Like, I don't even know whose game it was. So I don't know how that level of it works. So you, you would have to talk to, like, Hugh Rand and I'd have mm-hmm. to be like, Hugh, this copy of this I got has no... So there's definitely an upfront level of trust required. For people to have described the games to uh, in detail, right? So it goes back to being honest about what you have. Like that's the other thing, right? Like like be human, be nice. Don't try to rip people off. Like even when you're setting your prices, don't try to scam people. Don't this is, this is like kind of off topic but on topic. Don't say something's out of print that's not. Like check. Make sure it's actually out of print. Don't claim something's uh, you know, whatever signed or it's a first printing when it's not. Like that don't scam people. <laughs> just just be honest about the actual condition. Don't try to tape something together because they won't notice. Don't glue if you glue something back together, you e- indicate that too. Because glue bonds are usually not as strong as the original bond, even though it might look like it's in perfect shape. Just be honest.
2: Yep. Replacing components with second
0: edition bits. Yes. Not cool.
1: Yeah. If if you got replacement components, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: No. And then once once you've decided to to make something happen, there's you're still not done, right? So yeah. if it's one thing, if you're able to walk down to the uh, post office and throw it in there. Uh, and then you have to deal with tracking and making sure that something gets there and dealing with insurance. And if something gets lost, what happens? So there's all that. But even if you're doing something local, you still have to take precautions and need to be aware. Uh, if you're selling something on Kijiji, for instance, you don't want a bunch of strangers knowing where you live, especially if you're selling collector's items. Yes. Uh, this is not safe. And while going to... You know, McDonald's may be a reasonable option because it's reasonably busy. No one at McDonald's cares if someone is knifing you in the parking lot. Um, Whereas uh, what's luckily been happening in more and more cities is the actual police offices, uh, police stations have been opening up trading areas and saying, hey, look. Do you have something you need to trade on Kijiji? Do you need to, you you don't want to bring strangers to your house? Come down to the police station. We have this, you know, front lobby that's monitored by cameras with armed guards. Uh, Stop on by and do your trade there. Because honestly, if the person you're trading with doesn't want to stop by the police station, maybe you don't want to be trading with them in the first place. Fair enough. But but stick to stick to crowded locations like a McDonald's, but but like a McDonald's at three o'clock in the afternoon, not a McDonald's at two o'clock in the morning. McDonald's Um, not husky. (laughs) You want to you want to make sure that you are in a crowded place where you can feel safe if it does turn into a situation where the other person is becoming aggressive for any reason.
1: Yeah, no, very true. Be be in a public place or go uh, even going. Don't trust. Go to their house. Yeah. especially if they live in an apartment building, where you have to buzz in so that you're you're being removed from the public.
0: Yeah, going to your you're, your the, going going to someone else's house is no better than yeah. Than that's them what I'm to, your to point house. Out. <laughs> It's potentially worse,
1: like yeah. in my opinion. If you're the one selling the game, you're probably straight up trying to sell the game. But like dropping something off at someone's house, you worry about leaving the game there and not getting anything in return
2: my favorite is if you can do it at the flgs but i always feel weird about selling games at the flgs right you're like yeah that's uh, don't buy their stuff buy my used thing instead but it is i mean from a safety point of view it's great. yeah
1: local game store is <laughs> a great place to do it but check with your store so that's an important side note off that yeah. is is don't just assume that it's cool that you're going to sell your magic collection at the local game store when they're selling magic cards themselves. They may not be cool with that. Or they might be perfectly cool with it. Yeah. I, it depends. Depends on the store. But always ask with them. Um, the One of our local game stores does not encourage it all the time. But they set aside special events specifically for doing it. The best thing, though, is if your local store doesn't offer consignment, ask why. Um, because... Our local game store, the owner of it did some research into it with a, at a game convention at Gamma, um, talking to other stores and how much money they're making off consignments. And basically he left with the impression of you're kind of dumb if you don't. Like it's just, it's an untapped market and game stores are having a hard time nowadays. Like I'm not even talking, we're pretending there's no pandemic tonight. We'd have a whole different list of topics for meeting with people and porch drops and right. And, and <laughs> we're, we're going to ignore all that for tonight. Thankfully, we'll just forget that's going on, but having consignments just take like all the stores do is take a percentage right they give up a bit of their space they take a percentage off the top uh i don't know what that would be like i'm not a store owner i don't know what it would be but like look at the prices ebay's charging and make it less than that but not too crazy right and then they put aside in the spot in the store and they sell consignment games because they're still gonna sell their shiny new copies because people are collectors and like shiny new copies they're Just because there's a $40 copy of Root that's used there doesn't mean the $70 new copy is not going to sell necessarily. You're actually selling to two different markets at that point. The person that's going to buy the $40 copy was never going to buy the $75 copy. And the person that's going to buy the $75 doesn't want that used copy someone else has touched. Like, it's literally, it's it's two different vectors. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to think of it as a store owner. So, they like said, if they don't, I would recommend it. The one here was supposed to launch it. That was actually yeah. what I plan to do with my my growing pile of reviews. Timing. Review copies of games that I've, I've played and I don't necessarily feel like keeping, despite the fact them being pretty good games.
0: Yeah, no, and, and and just make sure you're informed uh, in the chat room. They are talking about, you know, again, if you're doing a math trade, make sure you read the fine print. You yeah. want to know what you're getting into. If you are going with consignment somewhere, make sure up front, you know who's setting the price, what mm-hmm. the percentages are, when payment is going to be due. Are they going to be paying you up front and they're going to handle the rest of it? Or are you not going to see a dime until they sell it? Uh, you know, that... They're holding on to that material and you need to make sure that you know when it's getting sold um, and and when, how much, how long after it gets sold, will you be paid?
2: I'm going to hop back for one. I mentioned about like using eBay as a source to set your price, but if you go on eBay and you decide, hey, it regularly sells on eBay for like $120 US and I'm going to sell it locally for $90 Canadian, use that as a selling point. Tell people that you're listing when you put it up.
1: Yeah, if, you, if you've if you done the research, let people know, like, hey, the, I, I, we do this constantly for our extra life auctions. We're like, all right, currently going on eBay for this much, right? Currently selling on Amazon for this much.
0: Yep, no, absolutely.
1: All right, so we talked about selling games. We talked about trading games. But there are alternatives to both of these options when you don't necessarily want or need to get anything in return. And that's donating your games to a good cause.
2: Yeah, you can donate your unwanted games to a local school, like grade schools would love to have games, even high schools, or a library, um, or you could give them to your local FLGS or game cafe for their uh, in-store library, and that has the added bonus of if it's just a space issue, maybe you know you can still go there and play it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can also just give your games direct to local gamers, right? If you're we talked about how you're doing your one and done, right? So one of the topics we talked about last week was before you get rid of a game that's been sitting on your shelf forever and you haven't played it forever, give it one more play. If you play that one more play and there's four of you playing and you're like, eh, yeah, I don't need to keep this. But one of the other players is like, damn, I really like this game. Just give it to him. Here you go. Have this game. We're done with it. We've had enough. You seem to have fun with it. Or people who are just starting off in the hobby or just getting into their collections. I do a lot of public play events where i get new gamers out and like i wish i had a couple extra copies of goku around like it's a cheap enough game that like some people get so hyped i'd be i'd love to be able to be like here just take a copy go home right like the, the, or even in all these facebook groups and stuff like that right like just the whole um play it forward kind of thing like put it up for sale and you don't get anyone for a while and then someone gets a hold of you finally and they're like oh i'm really excited about so you're like you know what i've had that up for a month you can just have it right it's gonna to go to especially if someone's excited, right? Because to me, that's a good thing to do because the person's going, it's going to a gamer. They're gonna play the game. Yep. Now another option is to donate them to a charity. Um, there's the Salvation Army. There's May Court. There's um, Goodwill and all that. Uh, for one thing, you're gonna end up making someone really happy when they take a picture of it and share it on Facebook to their Goodwill find. Um, other than that, like that's generally not what I would do, but it is an option. To me, that's better than throwing it out. Probably better than throwing it in a yard sale and getting a buck. Like, you might as well drop it off at, you know, your value village or whatever your local uh, charity or resale shop is.
2: Or you can upcycle it and turn it into something else. Because that was one of the suggestions last week when we were talking about Purging Games. Someone in the chat room suggested turning it into wall art, which is a very cool idea. Or we have, locally, Extra Life Auctions. You might have something similar local to you. and that's a really cool way to get rid of your games and know that it's going to a good cause. And and still staying local, probably, and going to be out maybe at public play events and in the community. So, yeah, it's cool. We have a lot of generous local gamers that will yeah. donate items every year for our extra life. And we raise thousands of dollars that way, so it's pretty cool.
0: And yeah. uh, another- anyone who... Do- Sorry, another great comment in the uh, chat room is donate to a local gamer design club if there is one, uh, so that they can use those parts and turn them into the next great board game. No, it That's makes a very perfect
1: cool sense. Idea. Yeah. For those who don't know what extra life is, it's a 24 hour gaming charity that raises money for the Children's Miracle Network hospitals. Uh, the goal is to game for 24 hours. It's uh, always around November every year. Gamers the world over take participate. It's something we participated in for uh, 10 years now. I think, I don't even know. It might be 11. And we've raised like over $15,000 US doing that. And a big part of that are extra life auctions, which does lead me to auctions in general. This is something You can do. I've seen people do them online. I've seen people do them in Facebook. I've seen people do them at local events. You can also auction off your game. Now, what's cool about auctions is you get that bidding war, right? You get that chance that you're like, hey, you know what? I got a copy of Root. It's 20 bucks. Anyone want it? And then, like, yeah, I'll buy it for twenty. Oh, I want twenty-five. I want thirty, and it keeps going up, and it ends up you can make some really good money off it. Now, again, if you're going to do this at a local game store, make sure you ask. This was something else that our local game store was hoping to do more often during the year than they do now. And plus, we ran one for Tropolis, We did, um, unfortunately, because a gamer had passed away, and we were getting rid of his game collection. That managed to raise enough money to basically open a game store. And auctions can be a great way to get great money for your stuff. Or sell it all dirt cheap. So you really got to watch it with auctions. It depends on your crowd. If your crowd's got some big spenders in it, you'll do awesome. But a lot of people go to auctions to look for deals. So to me, they're very hit and miss. And they are very stressful and a lot of work. Like, I think more so than having to deal with the idiot on eBay that you've been talking to a million times and you ship them the package and he says he didn't get it. and Like, that's simple compared to managing an auction.
2: Yeah, and then you use all this information to set your prices, your opening prices for your auction, and you give them all that info on what's missing, what's in the box, all that stuff. You'd be upfront about it. You don't want people handing it back to you next week.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. The auctions, the auctions are tough, uh, and especially depends on the crowd you you get to your auction. There, there, there are two mm-hmm. different kinds of charity auctions, uh, and I've experienced both in in various uh formats um i mean if you go to you know a big name charity auction where the point of the event is the charity Mm -hmm. then you get people people, oftentimes who are there to spend money they come it's much like a casino in that way right Mm -hmm. they are coming there with 500 and they are going to leave with zero dollars and that is the goal they Mm -hmm. may leave with something as, as well but they are there to spend money for the charity and give to the to the, mm-hmm. you know, the charity and the, and the cause. Uh, whereas in a lot of these other auctions, you know, in, in some of the things, like sometimes Extra Life, uh, you've got gamers there who are there to play games and look for deals. Mm-hmm. And they don't have $500 to spare. They have, you know, $40 that they'd really like to stretch out and, and get yeah. the most for.
1: It's, it's $40 for their whole entire weekend that's got to cover food, gaming, and coffee.
0: Right. right. And so, my, so they're looking for the deal.
2: Yeah. I was going to say my tip for running it is to try and have that mix of the rare high-value items and the bottom... Dollar deals so that you know you can get a good mix and yeah like we'll we'll, we'll toss
1: to in like gamer keychains and pokemon and things like that yeah. and yep. uh, promo cards and like you know five dollar items so for the people that don't have much money and i guess they, all right we usually get both we'll get people there with uh, the money in their pocket they're there to spend and we'll get the people there that, who didn't show up with any money even though it's a charity event
0: yeah and, and you really have to sort of balance it and, and hope that you get enough of the people who have the money to spend to make mm-hmm. the the a massive amount of time and effort you've put into the pricing and the, the, the labeling and, and the organizing of it, um, you know, worthwhile for the charity because you're not getting anything out of it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, if
1: it's donated, you are donating your time as well.
2: Running a charity auction is a topic in and of itself.
1: Yeah, true. (laughs) If anyone wants to hear us cover running a charity auction, send your questions to questions at tabletopbellop.com. We'll throw
0: it on the list. All right, well, that's it for our discussion on the best ways to get rid of your unwanted games. We're going to head over to the lobby now to see what the awesome folk gathered here have been talking about while we were talking.
1: All right, so again, what I want to see here is uh what have people done what have they done what what do their local stores offer what what kind of things have people done to get rid of games
0: so uh Pennywise in the chat was mentioning that they would load up bags full of games and go to a place about three and a half hours away because they could get store credit uh and use that to buy newer games to try out
1: no totally legit if
0: you can can get the store credit and a lot of places are going to offer you a better rate for store credit than they would if they were just giving you cash to walk away
1: yes yeah no actually that's a really good tip when you're selling anything anywhere like (laughs) like i i sold i kind of regret it now because we probably could have done a better deal but at one point i had an extensive toy collection because i was a spoiled brat and Selling that actually paid for my gaming hobby for many years. And I would go to a place called the Classic Comic and Card Center in Livonia, Michigan. And I would give them one Transformer and walk out with booster boxes of CCGs. Usually a spawn action figure because for some reason I was trading my toys for more toys. Which I don't quite understand that one now. And like an RPG rule book. And like like I, I, I think I tried every... CCG that came out in the 90s because of selling them this stuff. Because I started running out of things to buy. I'm like, I have everything I want, but I'll get more for store credit. So, how much? How about you give me all the Battletech uh, Mech Warrior collectible card game boxes you've got for this copy of uh, Rodimus Prime? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. So, it's definitely worth asking for store credit. Even the local store does give more for store credit, whether that's for cards or anything else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a real lot. Um... Now, Pennywise also saying using for, uh, Facebook board game groups to sell on Facebook, uh, not not to sell, but only to buy. So there's always an option to use to sell games if he calls more.
1: Yeah, now <laughs> Facebook groups have worked out really well uh, so far. The the thing too is like Windsor's not that big and there are two main local game stores. Well, three now, I guess. There's three local game stores now. I forgot about that. We have three local game stores now, and it's the same people that go to all of them, right? So it's most of the time, I know the people that are in the groups, which is an added bonus. The disadvantage is they know me, and I have a reputation now where no one wants to buy my games because they're like, why is Mo selling it? It must be bad. And I'm like, no, I have like a 1,000 games. They're not bad. I just have better ones, <laughs> and they don't quite always get oh, that. so
2: much space. Which is one of
1: the reasons I actually wanted the store to do local consignment because i didn't want my name on the box because people wouldn't know they were coming from me so they wouldn't be like well Mo doesn't like it what's wrong with it yeah no that's <laughs> not it. it's not everyone has the same taste as me
0: it's a real problem uh you know when especially when you have uh a reputation of any sort i mean it could be yeah. a good reputation or a bad reputation a reputation is going to color the pricing period yes uh one way up down left right uh prevent it completely uh mm-hmm. it's just it's something that's going to affect you so if you can use the store to essentially anonymize those transactions yeah. uh it's, it makes it makes life easier that way uh ryan was commenting while we were talking about uh, yard sales you know everyone mm-hmm. wants to be the one to discover the treasure and pay nothing for it at oh, yeah. the yard sale that's what oh, that's what yard selling is point. all about it's that, an adventure that is what it's all about uh, so, so, like I said, I
1: will admit, if you are going to try a yard sale, you can get away by having one table, we'll say, of highly priced items that people seem to tolerate. You'll still get some people in your face about even doing that, but you can tend to get away with that. But don't mix it in with everything else, and don't try to only sell collectibles. And watch it.
0: Watch <laughs> yes, when, yes. Watch put put even, that your cat like, Make that your cash box. Well, the other sort of thing too is
1: like we, we were selling collectible toys at the time. Parents letting their kids play with everything. We're like, no, that's a $300 Transformer. Don't let your six-year-old put it in their mouth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of problems with yard sales.
1: Yeah. They, our overall suggestion is don't, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Like, unless you don't care. Like I said, instead of throwing in the trash, you had that flood, you got that hungry, hungry hippos with no you marbles left. literally
2: want $2 a game, and that's better than nothing, and yeah. there if you go. <laughs> you, if you get to
1: that point, yeah. feel free. Even uh, then, though, I'd almost say donate. I know.
0: Yeah, the, the only them. my only caveat with donating would be do pay attention to the charities. Uh, you know, charities yeah. have different uh, ways of, of doing business, and they those may or may not uh, coincide with how your your feelings on things. So just make sure you know what's yeah, happening, who's, who's being benefited, and and all that. Uh, you know, before you you pick where you want those games to go to. Yeah, uh, the library is safe, but uh, you know if if there's a a storefront run by some organization do your you know do your due diligence yeah, to make sure you're your okay diligence. with that
1: find out where the money goes yep. find out what they support
0: uh Ryan support. Ryan has now pr- participated in first and second math trades in the past oh, nice. week So he's, like I say, uh, match trades are
1: definitely worth it. Um, So one of the things I did notice he mentioned, I don't think I see us here, is there are two types. So there are ship match trades and no ship math trades. You generally want to do the no ship because you have no clue where you're going to send this stuff. That's the thing with a match trade. You, you're like, I got six games from one person. So I only have to ship for one person. No, your six games are going to six different people, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's how part of how match trades
0: work. Yeah, and, and, sh- and there's nothing good about shipping. <laughs> no. Yes, there is shipping nothing is just good pain. about shipping.
2: I actually worked at a library for years, and I have feelings about library donations because they don't necessarily always go where you intend them to go. So I feel like if you really want your board games to be at that library, maybe talk to a librarian or someone that works there. Don't just drop off a giant box and assume they're going to keep them. They may just go home with staff or in, end up in their rummage sale. And if yeah. that's going to hurt your heart, don't do it.
0: Yep. No, absolutely. That that's a valid yeah. You, whatever you're doing, you don't necessarily just want to show up randomly with a box of stuff. Uh, yeah. it, no matter who you're giving it away to, even if it's even if you're donating it to the local grade school and you think oh they're gonna love this, well call them and check first um, because maybe there's some reason they can't. Maybe you know there are all sorts of strange rules and regulations even in non-pandemic times. So if you're gonna donate something, uh, you know unless they unless they've got a big sign up saying drop your stuff here. Big call. All
1: right. We got a bunch more stuff from Ryan. You want to just fire through these?
0: Sure. Ryan Ryan had a, a list of stuff that he's been, of uh, yeah, different awesome. things he's done. So he's given boxes of games to family to get them into the hobby, yeah, which is, awesome think, you know, again, that's the the pass it, pass it on, pass it forward, extend the hobby. Uh, ship box of games to a game store for credit. Again, we know store credit, now, hard to beat.
1: Uh, I know cool stuff, Inc., actually, in the U.S., buys games and cards where you just mail them to them and then they give you store credit and they are some of the best prices online for shopping. We have uh, one of the local gamers, Will Chamberlain's using in the chat. He's not in there tonight. Uh, that's how he pays for his board game hobby was he got rid of his magic collection to cool stuff and he had a significant enough collection that the last time I talked to Jamie, he still hasn't paid for a game. Because he had that much magic credit, like he played seriously. He played tournaments. He had mocks. Was that
2: where it was through? Yeah, was CSI, yeah, it was CSI. Yeah. cool
1: stuff. Inc.
0: It, it, it's all interesting. I, you US. know, I'm surprised there's not more of that because I know oh, with like electronics, there's a few different organizations where you send them their like you're your used electronics, and they give you yeah. uh, credit, a and credit. you can buy yeah. buy new electronics and stuff that way. Uh, not so much in Canada, but in the states, especially. There's a few different groups um that were heavily advertising on podcasts for a while which is how I know about them mm-hmm. uh and it was just you know they'll send you a they'll send you a an envelope and you send them your you send it to them like he, even the shipping was easy on in uh for that so, sort of stuff right. uh he also he sold games in the game market at Calgary convention again we got yep. going to cons uh,
1: seemed to have all every convention I've been to had something
0: yep some sort of, some sort of little you know either either trade or sale or or a way to get things yeah uh again we've he's done a couple of math trades which is awesome um sold games at bring and buy auction at a local convention that's a fantastic thing another another great way that conventions can can help out uh and gave games to the local game society library you know if
1: you've got a local gaming club that has a library that is a great place to because you'll
0: still be able to play it if you want to exactly but so will anybody else who wants to, to to get involved there uh it's traded on open game for unopened games at stores great
1: a good one to do if you get a gift
0: Yeah, no absolutely you get, you get, you get a you know, gift you post christmas 8,
1: eight <laughs> june thinks that harry potter funko verse is really cute but you're really into warhammer 40k you might be able to turn uh voldemort into some terminators
0: and he mentions he tried to sell some games on kijiji without success though there was some interest well i think that's yeah, we, sort of the definition of kijiji yeah. uh, not much success <laughs> but a lot of interest <laughs> We've we've successfully
1: done it a couple times, but yeah, Kijiji. I bought more than I've sold.
0: Yeah, I've I, I've done a couple of uh, purchases on Kijiji, and honestly, they have all felt really dirty and sketchy almost every time. Yeah, I got
1: yeah some of, some <laughs> of the I, I've gotten video game. System stuff, so I've yeah. gotten controllers, controllers and retro systems, what and, and the, 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 of? for a while I was getting Xbox controllers like that. I, I don't know where they came
0: from. Well, I mean, I, and I, I didn't up, ask, I picked up those games for you. Um, you did that, yes, you, you did that one thing, and it's this house that, um, seems to probably actually not be occupied as a house, but well, it's full yeah. of product. Um, and there happened to well, be, Well, that, games. One was legit. <laughs> that,
1: that, that had to do with uh, someone's parent passing yeah, yeah. away and but, but there's a few like of that, those yeah. where I've
0: been to, it's where you, you stop by. And I mean, I'm a big guy, so I'm not as careful as I recommend other yeah. people should be. Uh, but you stop by the house and it's sort of like, oh, you're this, this house is just a front for people selling things mm. that may well have fallen off a truck. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. uh, This, no one is living in this domicile uh but uh, yeah and then he uh he sold a box of BattleTech CCG cards to someone in the US for the cost of shipping
1: yeah <laughs> i've done that yeah i bought something like i i shipped that once i'm like anyone want this i'll do you just got to pay shipping and i've gotten games that way too um that was back in the G+ days that actually was relatively common but because it was common, more people did it, right? Right. wasn't one yeah. of those pay it forward things. Although shipping these days is
0: not something, it's only worth. Yeah, but right if now. the buyer's paying it. Yeah, yeah, but no, but I mean, right, like, particularly right now, during the, yeah. we aren't talking about pandemic generally, but in the pandemic times, shipping is yeah. ugly. No, no um, shipping, thank
1: you. Although we're going to ship stuff in three weeks.
0: I got, I got, I got something for my son's birthday recently, uh, and it shipped in the, from Canada Post, from literally 40 minutes down the road. I could have driven there and back, and back, probably there and back, in under an hour. And it took eight days to get to my house. <laughs> From the time Canada Post picked it up to the time they put it in my mailbox, eight days. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting time we're living in right now.
1: So it's, uh, the last thing Ryan notes is Starlight Citadel, which is a store that took games for credit, is closed. I didn't know that. That's a store I know of. Their, their prices weren't great for buying, but it was one of the few places you could buy used games online in Canada. All right, I think we're pretty good here. Um, one last note, if you're selling RPGs, another one is half price books. half price books in the States is great for buying RPGs and, and box sets and stuff like that. They may or may not buy board games depending on your local store. I've heard both. Most people say they do not do board games because they're too worried about missing components. But books from RPGs, they seem to be more than willing to buy. Oh,
2: yeah, I forgot about that in Abe
1: is a great
2: source for pricing and you can sell on there too but it you have to have a a large quantity to be able to be selling on there so yeah
1: so eight books is an aggregate that aggregates prices from local book uh from um independent bookstores Mm -hmm. that um do used sorry not like no chapters indigo but um Use bookstores and they aggregate so it's a, especially for rpgs a good way to find prices they you can sometimes find a board game on there but i find the board games tend to be no,
2: the board games ridiculous like they shouldn't yeah. be listed, yeah. on like they shouldn't be listed and they're like 300 dollars
1: each RPGs. but yeah rpgs definitely abe books abe.com
0: i think yep excellent well that's it for our main topic tonight remember you can find lots of gaming topics and advice like this over on the blog at Bell- Tabletop Bellhop. Just click on Gaming Advice at the top of the page. We also want to thank Deanna for joining us for this segment of the show and sharing her expertise on the topic. Now,
1: finally, as usual, if you've got a game or game night question for us, all you got to do, go over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or send me an email, questions at tabletopbellhop.com.
0: Up next, a look at Bastille from Queen Games. Queen Games provided us with a review copy of this game. No other compensation was provided.
1: Uh, Bastille was designed by Christoph Christoph Bear and features art by David Cockard. It was released at Essen 2018 by Queen Games. It plays three or four players and a game takes uh, about an
0: hour. For a look at what you get in the box, be sure to check out our Bastille unboxing video on YouTube.
1: There'll be a link to that in our show notes.
0: Now, I don't have
1: the time here to go through each component in detail, and that's probably going to happen with anything, uh, any Euro game like this, right? There's a lot of bits. If you do want to see everything you get, it's on the YouTube video, or you can go over to the blog post. But what I have to say here is I was extremely impressed by the component quality uh, in Bastille here. Like Queen Games is known for making high quality games, and Bastille is no exception. This is some of the best designed and layout i've seen in a game uh with clear large iconography used throughout and just little touches like a color-coded board that matches a similarly color-coded rulebook
0: well from the game's description it's the eve of the french revolution and you are the leader of a revolutionary group trying to best position your faction to be ready for when the revolution inevitably begins to do so you need money influence revolutionary leaders weapons to arm them, and more. The timing of this review is actually somewhat amusing, as Bastille Day, to commemorate the storming of the Bastille, was July 14th. So that was yesterday. We should have recorded this yesterday. (laughs) I know. But enough about messy reality. How about you give us an overview (laughs) of play in the game Bastille? All right. To start a
1: game of Bastille, put the board out, put out four random characters, put out a stack of Versailles tiles on the Versailles spot, Uh, flip one face up, Put a number of weapons in the Bastille uh, based on the number of players. Stack the mission cards and then put out the bonus tiles, one for each round and flip up the one for round one. Now, players are going to take their bits and you are going to have a set of influence tiles, uh, the exact numbers of which are based on the number of players, a scoring tile, which is if you happen to lap the board, you get to put that out, henchman cubes and eight coins. Uh, You've got two meeples. One's going to go at the start of the scoring track and another is going to go on a track that circles the Bastille, known as the Bastille track. You're going to draw the top card from the mission deck, which gives you an endgame scoring goal. Now, a game of Bastille is played over eight rounds. Each round is broken into three phases. Now, first, you're going to place those influence tiles out. Then the locations on the board are resolved in numeric order. And then there's this flag scoring phase. In addition to that, there are two scoring rounds. One happens at the end of round four and another one happens at the end of the game.
0: So basically, you've got 26 steps to complete the game if you include those scoring rounds from start to finish.
1: Sounds about right. I don't think I ever counted them or did the math. Uh, first thing you do is place your influence tokens. So in turn, you're going to choose one of your tokens and place it on one of the locations in Paris on the board. Uh, each of the locations has room for either two up to four influence tokens defending on the spot. Most spots only hold two. Some of them hold up to four. Once a spot's taken, no one else can place in that spot and you always have to make sure you play left to right. And the reason for that is that ties are broken based on who placed first. Uh, Interestingly enough, players can play multiple multiple tokens to the same place if they are available. Now, once you've all placed your tokens, you're now going to go through starting at location one, going to location seven, and evaluate them. The way they're evaluated is the person who placed the highest number influence token there is the one that gets to activate the location, gets to do the thing. Followed by the player with the second highest influence, and then third highest influence, fourth highest influence. Now again, note, you could be first and second, so it could be the same player that has these spots, or more often it's different. Again, ties are awarded to the player who went there first, so the person furthest to the left.
0: So players are bidding for the right to take actions on the board with the player bidding the most, getting some form of additional advantage uh, or first, if if in case of a time.
1: Yeah, or placed first. Yeah. So if you play the same influence, if you both have threes. The person who played the three first is going to get the bonus. Now, deciding what influence token to place where is a big part of Blast Deal, and also not only where, but when making sure, like looking at what everyone else has. So this is another game. This is a game where everything is open information. You're not hiding anything. There's no player screens. You always see exactly how much money everyone has, what characters they've hired, and how much influence they have. Now, I at first, I was going to sit here and go through all of the seven locations, but you know what? That's going to take us another 20 minutes. So if you want a breakdown of every location, you're going to have to check out the blog because I don't want to spend too much time on it here. But basically, there are spots that get you more money, spots that let you improve your influence tokens, a spot to collect bonuses, like you can get extra points, move on the pastel track, get some torches, torches are wild wildcard weapons you want to collect, and so on. There's the Catacombs, where this one's kind of neat because you place little cubes. They represent your henchmen going into the Catacombs underneath Paris, and they may come out during the scoring round to get you bonuses. There's a spot to hire characters, so you're you're building your revolutionary army, and you place those in your tableau. Then there's the Bastille itself, which I mentioned earlier is a track, so you can go up on that track, and you're going to get points during the scoring round based on how far you're up that track. And the Bastille also determines which order you get to grab weapons, so it's an important track to being up. The last place just lets you get mission cards, which are end game scoring.
0: So it's really interesting because this is essentially in many ways a dry, boring Euro, except Mm -hmm. they have managed to tie the theme in with this dry, boring Euro to take it to another level that you Mm -hmm. don't normally expect from a lot of these cube pusher type games.
1: No, I totally agree on this one. I think, again, if you get into the details, like you get the money, you go to the bank. Like the, the, the locations are tied to what you get from them, and it just makes sense so next is the final stage I mentioned this before it's called flag scoring all this is is you look at your citizens whoever has the most French flags gets a bonus for having it and then the person with the second most flag gets another bonus now once you get to turn four you're halfway through the game right four out of eight rounds you're going to do an interim scoring round now players are going to get points for a number of things Uh, the number of gems on the characters they've collected having the most crowns on the characters they collected how far they are around the Bastille track and then that cool catacombs thing happens so I do want to explain this because i think it's a neat thing so what happens is you've got this bag where you've been putting in henchmen throughout the game well during the scoring round you pull out five cubes and then when each cube's pulled out the player gets some kind of reward and there's like two different catacomb boards and you pick which reward it is and depending on the level of the reward you're either going to get to put the guy back in the catacomb the the henchman back in the catacomb or you just take the reward and they're considered gone for the rest of the game so there's a little bit of a push your luck element there Then after you've done the catacomb phase, you do get to take weapons from the best deal. So again, the person who's in front is going to get two weapons. The next person is going to get two weapons. And the person who's in last only gets one weapon.
0: So the catacombs aspect is another really interesting one because the catacombs of Paris have played such a huge role in the city's history, including throughout the uh, the storming of the Bastille and, and preparations too and the revolution itself, uh, but they aren't straightforward. I mean, they are catacombs. They are a maze beneath the city. So the risk reward aspect even is very on point for the theme. Yeah.
1: So we play four more rounds right we get to the eighth round and we do some end game scoring it's very similar to the first game scoring uh one of the things you do have to do here is rearrange your characters so there are three types of characters there's peasants soldiers and nobles and you have to group them into groups so all your peasants go together all your soldiers go together all your noblemen go together and you also have monks and monks are wild cards they can join one of the other groups this is all very important for the end game scoring cards then once you got your groups together you need to arm your troops so this is where you assign the weapons and again it's paired up so the peasants need pitchforks the soldiers need rifles and the nobles need rapiers now torches count as wild cards so torches are really valuable because you can give them to anyone then you're going to look at your tableau of characters and you're going to get a bunch of points for them so you're going to get points for the gems on them whoever has the most crowns how far you've gone on that bastille track Actually, every character card gives you a set number of points just for collecting them. Then you're going to go through your mission cards and see if you completed any of them. Again, those are endgame scoring cards. And then your coins that you have left. Now, again, you're going to explore the catacombs. The difference here is the rewards are slightly more limited because you're at the end of the game. So there's certain things that just aren't worth doing. And they're bigger rewards and you don't get your henchmen back. Now, the henchmen that are still left in the bag are actually still worth something. They are going to be worth one point each for every henchman that was still in the bag. So throwing your henchmen in the bag, even if they don't come out during two of the the two scoring rounds, they still got you something. Finally, you look at your characters and you try to figure out if you left anyone unarmed, because you don't want unarmed characters during a revolution. You are going to lose a number of points based on how many characters are unarmed at the end of the game. And this can be huge. If you have five or more characters unarmed, you're losing 20 points in a game that usually scores around 50 to 70. After this, the player with the most points win the game, ties broken with the player with the most coins, any future ties are a shared victory.
0: All right, well, that's the technical aspects. Now, let's talk about what works or doesn't work.
1: All right, so when I brought Steel home from Origins 2019, I honestly had no clue to expect. Uh, for anyone who wants to the story, listen to previous episodes where I explained exactly where this game come from and why I brought it home. Now, one thing I did expect from this game is high quality presentation and components. This is a trademark of Queen Games. I don't ex- I expect Queen Games to look and look great. And this is a step above that in a way. This is one of the best designed games I've ever played in regards to not the mechanics, not that the mechanics are bad, but like the layout, the the design of the board, the iconography, the colors used. Like this not only helps with information dissemination during play, easily being able to see stuff like from across the table, but it also helps when teaching the game to new players because everything's right there and easy to see.
0: It's, it's always so fantastic when you've got a game that helps you help yourself with great design and visual cues to just mm-hmm. help things move along.
1: Now, the other highlight for me with Bastille is the, the mechanics. The, it's, it's a mix of auction bidding with worker placement, because placing an influence token on a spot is obviously worker placement. But by putting it there, you're actually bidding. That amount of influence from your pool of influence to take that action and then the next player if they have a bigger influence token can outbid you and you may not get what you wanted and i think that's really fascinating that combination of bidding and worker placement this whole influence system just works really well and opens up some very interesting decision points and timing the 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 mix of where do i want to go do i want to go there first um do I want to see what someone else bid before I go there? All of those are fascinating decisions to
0: make. Yeah, and it has some real thematic linkage, again, with the factions in the French underground putting their own reputations on the line in order to draw greater support into their faction and, and you know, take the, take the lead when it came to storming the Bastille.
1: Now, there are downfalls, of course. Uh, no game is perfect. And the one I have found the biggest downfall when playing over multiple games of Bastille is the interaction of the character deck, how it's distributed. So it is a deck of different characters and they are split into A, B, C. And you shuffle the C deck and you put that in the bottom, then the B deck and the A deck on top. And the order the characters come out in that is very important. And misunderstanding that can lead to players thinking they're going to be able to do something and score something and not be able to because a card's already out of the deck. So, uh, or totally misinterpreting the end game scoring where you're looking at the scoring thinking you need a series where instead you need a set, as an example, without showing you the cards or getting into any details. Uh, These idiosyncrasies have caused the game to fall somewhat flat. Like I, I no one I've taught the game has had a horrible experience, but I've had a few meh, it was okay feeling on the first game because of people not grasping how that character deck ties to the end game scoring deck, the mission deck.
0: I see this this immediately as I was reading through this reminded me of some of my experiences with Card Kingdoms of Valeria, which mm-hmm. is a game I love. Right up until that scoring round, when it turns out that I have completely misread my endgame scoring card and was collecting the wrong thing and have lost. Yeah,
1: and that is literally what happened to Deanna the first time she played Best Deal. She aimed for a certain strategy and collected a certain set of characters to score big points and got nothing because she misinterpreted how a card was read. Now I will say, Queen tried. Right, they tried to help. They gave you this reference card. But as a new player to this game, this thing's intimidating as heck. Like, this is a lot of information in one place that's just overwhelming. And I got to say, most people, players that aren't going to... They're not going to take the first play of a game seriously enough to deep dive this reference list. To look up, oh, when does the seven peasant come out versus the three? And when is that going to matter? And how many of each card is in the mission deck and things like that, right? And well, what this all means is that for players to really grok and enjoy Bastille, you need to play the game, in my opinion, at least twice. And I gotta say two tends to be enough. And the problem with that is today's board game culture is very much one and done. You play a game once, you have the experience, you move on to the next experience. And I have a feeling with Bastille, a lot of people are gonna try this game, they're not gonna deep dive it, and they're just gonna be like, oh, eh, all right, let's move on.
0: Yeah, I I feel so... Strongly for game designers these days, because they are being asked to design a game that is both sufficiently meaty and deep that you can get your hooks into as a heavy gamer, but also plays perfectly well the first time you sit down at it. And I think those are pretty mutually exclusive goals in Mm -hmm. many cases. Right. No, I agree. And plus, once you get into like
1: a super heavy game, people are willing to accept it, right? Like when you're getting into a Venos or a 4.5 or something crazy like that. But Steel not that, right? This is a medium weight Euro. This is not a heavy game. It's like a, a 2.8. It's a little bit above Race for the Galaxy. It's It's not a heavy game and it plays in about an hour. But there's those great decision points and that system mastery reward that comes with a heavier game. And I think people aren't going to expect that. Now, the whole thing is, I've now played this a number of times, and the thing is, I know this now, right? I've played enough that I know that there is this potential problem of players not understanding the importance and value of the character deck. So now I front-load that, right? So if I am teaching this game, I will spend additional time going through each of the mission cards. I will literally flip out every card in the deck, explain the distribution and what each of them mean to make sure it's clear. And then I will take out the citizen deck and I will show how the A's are different than the B's. Now I won't go through every card and then I will point to the reference sheet and repeatedly mention during the game Before grabbing a mission, you might want to check the reference sheet and make sure the characters you want aren't gone already. Or they're still to come. And the other thing is, you don't use every character every game. So parts of the C deck never come out. So again, knowing that, knowing that not every character is going to be coming out, you don't want to hinge your whole strategy on one thing. So what I do is I front load it. Which, wow, has that greatly improved the initial gameplay experience. So when I taught this game to my sister-in-law and mother-in-law, they both, I, I don't know, but loved it. Like, I think Brenda really loved it because she has to come back and play it again, which is a really good sign. And she came back and we played three player. Collie, um, I think, dug it. Like she didn't complain about it, but they got it, right? Like they knew how to do it. The problem is I'm not everywhere. I can't be there to teach everyone who plays Bastille this the first time they play.
0: It sounds to me like perhaps the instructions don't perhaps focus on these details enough. Uh, If it takes someone who's got a few plays under their belt to be able to teach it properly, to maximize game enjoyment and success, that says a little bit something about not necessarily the the quality of the rules, but just the the organization and and the level of importance placed on certain aspects in the rules.
1: So again, if you look at it, they gave you a summary sheet with this information specifically. Nothing else. There's no summary sheet of the bonus tiles. There's no summary sheet of the, just the character deck and the mission deck on a one page sheet. So they obviously knew this was an issue or else they wouldn't have included that sheet. The problem is like, who wants to deep dive a spreadsheet at the start of a game? And that's basically what it is, right? Like it's got pretty pictures, but it's a spreadsheet. Right. Now, overall, I got to say, I dig this game. Um, I admit my first play was rough. Uh, My first play with other people has been rough. My third play with new people was rough until I figured all this out, right? But I got to say, there is a very solid game here that's doing something interesting and new. That whole mashup, of worker placement with auctions, like with, with bidding. I wouldn't call it auctions, it's bidding. It's an auction bidding mechanic. Plus, this game just is so beautifully produced. Like just some unique things. And I got to admit, this is probably not good for colorblind people, I don't know. But the fact the player's colors are the French flag. You got red, white, and blue, and then they threw in black. And like just that little touches like that are just, that puts it over the top out of most things in my thing. And it is just that design and the fact, all the scoring's right on the board just makes it a joy to play. If you dig auction games or worker placement games, I think you got to give this one a try. Like find a way, like find, find a demo copy. try it at a con, see if your local game store will do a demo just to see it, just to see what they've done with these mechanics. If you are a fan of medium weight euros, like not heavy, but with enough thinking to them, like I think Catan fans might find a lot to like in here. I think you're going to dig this. All I ask is do not give up after one play. Like, this is, is I, I've seen it. I have seen people go from, eh, to, wow, that's actually really good. This one requires a bit of system mastery to shine.
0: Now, one thing I see in reviews uh, of, from people on BGG is um, it's Lancaster's little sibling. Um, why, why play this if you can play Lancaster?
1: I own both. I preferred Bastille. It has been a long time since I played Lancaster. I couldn't tell you exactly why off the top of my head. But okay. Lancaster, going back to last week's topic, is something Deanna and I literally discussed this weekend about getting rid of because it felt dated. Right. That was the biggest thing with Lancaster. It felt like an old Klaus Tuber came out in the year like before 2000 or around 2000. It's just something about that game felt dated. And that's one where you're placing knights on spots to do something and you can play higher knights to bump, which to me is different than multiple people bidding for a slot. Right. I don't know. Like, to be honest, I, I couldn't tell you exactly why? Because it's been so long. Lancaster yeah. is literally we haven't purged it. It's the, it's one of those we're going to try again. Right. And to be honest, now I'm curious. Now that that's come up, if we do play Lancaster again, I'm going to have to be comparing it in my head to Bastille.
0: Right. I mean, they're both queen games. Uh, you know that Lancaster yep. Lancaster is notably higher on the BGG rankings, but it's also been out longer. So uh, you know, it's got time. it's got the uh, and it's it's a slightly higher weight. It's a two point. It's a it's a three to Bastille's two seven.
1: Two seven i was close so, i said two eight. Yeah, yeah i was close with that. which
0: again you know with our uh, yeah with mid, it, mid-range, it's, it's mid-range around that. heavy it's, for us yeah all right mid-range. well for a more in-depth look at bastille you can head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on reviews where you will see all the different areas and components and now a look at season one episode one of escape mail an escape room game delivered to your home we received a review copy of this episode of Escape Mail from Mobile Escape, and no other compensation was provided.
1: All right, so Escape Mail is probably not one people have heard of before. This is this is uh, something different. I don't even, I, I, to me, it's still a tabletop game, but it's not your standard board game. This is a new escape room experience delivered by mail from a company called Mobile Escape. Uh, they are Canadian, located in Alberta, Canada, so thumbs up Canadians. Uh, you can get a season one episode at a time, So you can just buy season one, episode one, or you can buy a bundle of all of them together, or you can actually get it as like one of those monthly boxes where they'll send you a new episode each month. Now, the cost of an individual episode is $14.99 Canadian, whereas the bundles cost $132 Canadian, which is a heck of a lot better than $180 if you bought them all separately. Now, Sean and I actually did some comparison shopping on this after checking it out. And this seems pretty much on par with similar mail order puzzle experiences.
0: Yeah, Now, if you want to take a look at what you get in this first episode of Escape Mail, I do encourage you to check out our Escape Mail unboxing video on YouTube. Now, in this video,
1: I try to be really careful not to spoil anything. Uh, people have a various different levels of uh, acceptability for what they consider spoilers. So what I do is I open up the envelope. Everyone's going to see that. And then I get to a seal and I don't break that seal. And then I give everyone notice that I'm about to break that seal. So if you want, you can see that far and then turn the video off. But to be honest, I don't think seeing what's in this envelope is going to spoil anything. Like you're not going to see any of the puzzles. You're not going to see any clues. You're just going to see the bits that come in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, short of literally pausing and staring and working out, figuring out things and, and, you know, trying to, catch things when he holds it up to the camera but it's only recorded at 720p anyway so (laughs) the the chances are you're not going to be able to spoil anything and even if we were to have mildly spoiled it it's only episode one of 12 and they offer bundles that don't even include episode one so if you'd had felt it was spoiled (laughs) you can just go ahead and get the bundles episode two through 12 instead of episode one through 12.
1: Yeah, I thought that was actually pretty brilliant. So what I'll say here is, first off, I was surprised how much they shoved in one envelope. Like the envelope didn't look that thick, but I felt like I just kept pulling stuff out of it. It felt like a clown car. Like there's parts of a map, some twine, there's a shipping manifest fence to scrap a scrap of parchment with marks on it that was like threadbare and falling apart and a bunch more. Again, I'm not going to go into all the details. Now, what I will say is the quality was a mixed bag. Like... All of it was pretty obviously like, like someone threw this in their inkjet printer, right? Some of it was literally on paper. Some was on cardstock. There's no cardboard here. Like you're, we're not talking about punch outs or anything like that. Um, some of the bits were weathered and folded and they look kind of aged, right? Like they did the, the, the tricks. I don't think anything was soaked in tea, but it kind of had that look, but then others were not where like, like this literally like just looked like it was printed on inkjet paper. Um, I can't say I was overly impressed, but you know what? I wasn't disappointed either. It was kind of what I expected from something someone sent in the mail.
0: Yeah, it's, it's tough. As sometimes an authentic clue in a modern puzzle really could just be something someone zipped off on an inkjet these days. True. Uh, though I guess I would hope that as you get deeper into the seasons, things got a little bit more interesting for materials.
1: I got to say, looking ahead, it did look like it. I saw some much more 3D looking components looking on their website. Uh, The other thing that's worth noting is that you will need tape. You will need scissors. uh, You will need to destroy components in order to solve the puzzle, which means that each episode is a one and done. It's disposable. You're not going to be able to pass it on to your friend. Now, the other thing you require, which I thought was pretty interesting, is you need to have an email account and access to a web browser.
0: Well, luckily, nothing that most people don't have regularly accessible. We should note that Escape Mail does market strongly to schools. So they do keep something in mind uh, not necessary. So, you know, it's going to be something that a student has accessible to them in most cases.
1: So for the actual sitting down and playing the game, uh, we decided to invite Brenda. That's Deanna's mom over to try it. Uh, She is a huge puzzle fan. Like, out of our whole family, she's the one that, you know, goes to shoppers and picks up the Sudoku books and the logic puzzle books and that. And I thought she'd really enjoy the experience and also, well, be an asset if we got stuck. Because she's probably way better at puzzles than we are. One thing I found very interesting about this when I compare it to other Escape Room-style games I've played is that there were no instructions. Like, it literally just started immersed in the experience uh, with a note. This is something you're going to see as soon as you open the envelope, so I'm not spoiling it here. Uh, it was obvious, you're going to read this note from a family member, and that's it. Like, after that, I it was not immediately obvious where to go. So at first, like the three of us were literally just like, here, let me see that. Let me see that. Hold this. Oh, look, this is underlined. Oh, what the heck does this mean? Like fumbling around, trying to figure out how everything interconnected. Now, eventually I figured out the one trick, right? That kind of gave us some direction. And I got to admit, finding that was like the first win of this thing. Like it was the oh, that felt good. I'm like, oh, that's that's the thing that tells you what to do. And that felt good finding that.
0: And that feels like an authentic escape room experience to me. Uh, You know, if you go into a commercial escape room, you know more or less what your end goal is. You need to escape or, you know, fire a fire off the cannon or, you know, find the spy. But you have no idea what form it's going to take between here and there or what you might experience on the path to get there. And finding that starting point is often part of the uh, game.
1: See, that's cool to hear. See, my, my experience has been with the Exit series and I've seen the unlock series. I haven't done one myself and they are very clear about what you're looking for and what to do. Like they're, here are your cards and here's what you're looking for on the cards and here you're going to do this and here's the code wheel and a very clear direction. Like it has a rule book, for, uh, like a board game, where this did not. So that it's interesting to know that this is actually closer to a real escape room experience. Now, interestingly... At least I thought it was. Uh, during that initial confusion, there was a particular uh, project that Brenda started working on that was a step above what was actually required. So this was a word based puzzle, and she had gotten it about 75%, maybe an 80% solved. Then we found another clue that gave us a cipher that would have made solving that entire thing very easy from the start. So I thought it was amusing that we had almost solved like the hard, we almost did it on hard mode. Like we almost skipped the step.
0: Yeah, and some people are just dedicated puzzle solvers. And just because a cipher helps doesn't mean there may not be another Mm. path to get to that same solution.
1: Now, I guess say looking at the the experience as a whole, I think I found the difficulty to be just about right. Uh, This said difficulty, regular, whatever that means. Uh, We did get stumped a few times, but never long enough that it got frustrating. Uh, We definitely didn't give up on anything. There also weren't any puzzles that were just glaringly obvious. There was never the, Oh, obviously this goes here. Everything took at least a bit of thought. Uh, I, figure our total time to solve everything was probably just under an hour which i think sounds about right for the style of game
0: yeah and that sounds like a pretty fulfilling escape room experience without the concern for pandemics and cleanliness
1: (laughs) that too now one aspect i didn't like was the technological aspect the fact that like yes we do you need an email address on a web browser. Well, obviously you're going to email someone, right? Like that's just obvious. Why would I need an email address if I'm not going to email anyone? And it just, having to do that, like it was done well enough, but it felt like it took us out of the game. Like uh, just to fight the fact that, that we knew this and and the letter, something the letter, the language used, the the, the names used, just made me feel like we were like in an Indiana Jones. Like this was back in the past. It was like the 1940s. We were on some kind of like treasure hunt, right? And I just pictured like the family member that wrote us to be like Indiana or like a Professor Jones or something. Like, I don't know. I just pictured something totally different. And I can say that this is definitely modern. And uh, seeing that end, I just for some reason had a craving for craft beer.
0: It, it took some twists that I think I, I feel safe in saying were budget related.
1: Yeah, I could see that. Uh, which does lead me to the most disappointing part of this entire endeavor, which was the reward at the end, the payoff. While all of us had fun puzzling things out and getting to the final answer, that payoff, I will say is lame. Like, like, I'm tempted to just like drop a link in chat and spoil it here. So other people know what to expect here, but I won't, I'll be good. I will just say that it wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, it was very poorly produced, uh, and rather corny. Uh, and I got to say, did not make me want to order episode two.
0: Now, I've seen what we've discussed in here. I didn't take part in the escape room, but I have seen the link. Uh, yeah. And if it were to represent the entirety of the season, I might start to question the value. Though, as we've pointed out, the activities and puzzles were certainly yeah. well formed. Uh, and it's one of those things where you almost they almost might have been better off without including that last portion. If if that yep. payoff hadn't been there at all, it oh, might have definitely. been a better experience yep. because you wouldn't have had the letdown. And that's one of those things where at a real escape room, the fact that you finish and the door opens is is the great part. Yeah. You don't need the story to be completed anymore. You have escaped. That's the win. Uh, and they've they've gone to that next step as a as a you know continuity thing. I think, uh, and it it hurts.
1: Now, Diana is also pointing out that it also broke the story in a way. I don't know if I want to read off what she's saying because it's getting a little spoilier. Uh, basically, you were trying to work with a family member to do something and they were looking for help. But the end was them going, yeah, yeah, you figured it out too, which is kind of weird because I thought they were looking for help. So there was a story disconnect there as well. Right. But like to be honest, I think Sean's right. I think if the end result was that it just led to by the next season might have actually felt better. Than what we did get
0: Right
1: Now overall I don't don't know I have mixed feelings I'd say all three of us Enjoyed the experience Um, The most fun actually Was that initial confusion When you just have All this stuff in front of you And you're like I don't even know and like there were some things we picked up and managed to get something out of and we're like, oh, but what the heck does that mean? And like noticing some of the, the bits of clues that you put together later. Like remember we noticed this. Uh it there was the puzzles were difficult enough that you felt smart solving them, right? That's part of the reward of puzzles, right? Is you get that, yeah, I'm a smart, I got it. Uh the solving the puzzles was fun. I just have ah, that reward. Like I I don't know um i didn't pay for this so i I, maybe i'd feel different if i put out hard-earned cash for this too and then saw that end because that end game here was lacking like again it didn't make me want to try the next episode so looking at the value right so for 22 dollars canadian or less if there's a sale i can get a complete story and a complete experience from one of the exit games from cosmos i've reviewed those on the blog if you want to see about them there's two of them we reviewed there whereas for escape mail if I want to get the full story, if I want to see all of season one, I got to spend over $130. And that's only if I buy the one time. If I start buying them separate, I got to spend $180. I got to say $180 buys an awful lot of exit games.
0: But now at the same point, uh, you're getting uh, what I, I'm trying to compare here. When you look at the, the, the number of puzzles, uh, is it an exit game versus one of these one of these episodes? Is it about two episodes for an exit game? sort of comparison
1: exit games have a lot of puzzles like uh you're looking at 13 puzzles
0: okay so you're looking so you're looking almost three episodes for an exit game okay
1: yeah that that's a i'm I'm trying to remember i think the last one we played went up to an end deck right that's that's a an estimate i'd have to check our reviews so yeah you're looking at about 13 puzzles to me it's it's that full story it's that full reward it's that i get a full experience as opposed to a cliffhanger that makes me wanting more right I can definitely see people would like this. Like, like, to be honest, uh, this is something I'm like, that might be a good gift for Brenda because she really enjoyed the puzzle aspect. Right. So that's something to consider. But I'll admit, I'm not going to be picking up the next episode. Now, what they do do, which is kind of cool, is as Sean mentioned, now that I've tried episode one, I could buy a bundle with two and on, which means you can easily, without much investment, just buy episode one without having to worry. Now you got to buy the full bundle. They have priced it that way, which I think is cool
0: all right well for a more in-depth look at this first episode of escape mail you can head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on reviews and now the bellhop's tabletop where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. what games hit our tables yeah we like to do this
1: every week we take a look back at the games we played any events we attended which hasn't happened in a long time and any other cool gaming stuff that's going on i gotta say it was a good week for me here this was a, this is a good one with lots of in-person gaming so uh and that's with cancelling one game night. We were supposed to get together one more time before we got the Bastille review out. I was hoping to play it once more with three people. Uh, it didn't happen, but I don't think I would have discovered anything new. Uh, so my week actually started last Thursday. So just after we recorded, which was a three-player game of Bastille, uh, this was was uh, with Brenda, Deanna and I, and this went extremely well. Uh, This was my first time playing with three, and I am pleased to say the game worked just as well at three as with four. Uh, Deanna noted she actually preferred it at three, because with four players, you only get three influence tokens, so you only get to do three actions every round, whereas with three players, you get four tokens, so you get four actions every round, so that's a lot more
0: actions over the whole game. Interestingly, uh, BGG is, is saying that it's best at four as voted by the people, but if you actually click through, it is a tie, and for whatever oh, reason, it ha- they have come out and said four, but it is exactly the same number of votes, for three, and four.
1: I personally think I preferred it at four because there was more competition over spots, and I like that interaction, so there you go, you get a split here, I- I'd say four, she'd say three. Uh, Up next comes a rather interesting two-player game of Katana, actually a couple of them. So last time I talked about Katana, this is that um, samurai's fighting sword, sword fighting game, card game with some really beautiful cards. I noted that we had a number of rules questions that came up and how awesome it was the designer had answered all of them. Heck, they even went so far as to publish an official FAQ based on my questions, which I was so happy to see because unfortunately this game needs an FAQ. So when we sat down to play this, I just fully expected to sit down and be able to dive in because we've had all our questions answered, right? But sadly, that was not the case. Uh, the first step of the game is you get a hand of commie cards, three of them. And you're going to pick one, and I looked at mine and I was like, "Oh no!" and Deanna looked at hers like, "Oh no!" and we both had a question about one of the commie in our hands, so that's a little rough, so surprisingly enough, despite the fact it's like eleven thirty at night our time i don't know where Tracy is. I was able to get in touch with Tracy Tracy Allen, the designer of the game, and I got a hold of him on Instagram, and he was awesome about answering our questions, which is a good thing because as the game went on, we had a lot of them, like I thought we had a lot the first time, like we had about a dozen questions over two plays and like a few of these were things we probably could have guessed extrapolated from the rules but there were definitely things that were not covered anywhere in the rule book now i do have to thank tracy for being there with us while we played because that was awesome we were able to finish our games because if he wasn't i we might have just given up
0: yeah no it's well i truly do appreciate tracy helping out and being there in a way you don't often see from designers the reviews on Board Game Geek indicate that he's had to be there for players, often answering many questions for the Kickstarter backers to, uh, when they when they receive received their copies and started playing, and as well as it just seems helping people muddle through a rule book that unfortunately just wasn't complete now. Additionally, this actually shows some real problems with reviewers out there who didn't find any of these problems or comment on them, or at least didn't reach out to Tracy and tell him if there were problems. And this is the real reason why we haven't released a review on this game yet, because we haven't gotten the plays in to really determine the quality of the game. We have it's not just one and out.
1: Yeah, that's that's the one thing I we are going to I expect to review this game next week. This will this will be part of our hundredth episode. We're gonna celebrate by reviewing Katana. Now it just happens to fall at the same time. I again though I need at least one more play. Like I'm hoping for more than one. I'm hoping for two or three more plays. With now having all the rules, like we've yet to sit down and play a full game, not having a rule question. So it's hard to review the game without just saying you can't play it. That like. You could extrapolate many of the answers from the rules, but there were a few things that came up where, where like, I don't know. Like, we would have had to just make something up.
0: And uh, it seems like uh out portland way or at least was originally from portland he may not be there now but he's he's from portland so he's got that time zone advantage on you
1: uh that's what it is that's why he was still up all right next i got jaws from prospero hall and Ravensburger for the table for the first time since extra life uh this was the first time deanna had ever even really seen the game because she was so busy at extra life she didn't see it uh now it is worth noting like me she has not seen the movie
0: I, I just don't know what to say. I mean, that movie is as old as you and I are, and a true classic. I don't know.
1: Just never saw it. I, did, I didn't watch horrors when I was a kid. Rated R movies just didn't happen. Just wasn't one of those things. In a, I don't know. they never appealed to get... I don't know. Maybe I should try to hunt it down. I don't even know if it's on any streaming. <laughs> anyway, so this play, I end up playing the shark again, because I was the one that knew the rules, and they're the most complicated, uh, with... Only being two of us, Deanna had to play all three of the other characters. So, which is kind of interesting. If you play with two people, it's even weirder where you each control one character and then share one. I don't think I've ever seen a game where you share a character before like that. Like, not you take turns. You just both control it. Not like you own it one turn, you own it the next turn. Whatever. Anyway, uh, game went well, but it felt long. Like, it just, I don't know. Playing through both parts took us a good hour and a half. I don't know what it says on the box, but it just felt longer than it should have uh part of it was deanna had a real hard time catching me in the first episode um and i actually got to like the the trigger where you just automatically go to the next section without any any um barrels attached to my shark at that point so i, I got to the the whatever requisite number of swimmers jump but what was cool was despite me doing like as well as possible in the first episode the second episode was still really close and rather tense so that was nice um except for feeling a bit long Deanna noted she thought it was neat and specifically wanted to point out that knowledge of the movie doesn't matter like she's like it was a game it was fun I enjoyed it and not knowing Jaws didn't matter
0: yeah very true well there are some nice things there for the movie fans to appreciate it's not at all required. Uh, and I just want to point out that De- Deanna does point out that it really does to her, especially not knowing the movie, feel like two separate games.
1: Yeah. Whereas, and I get it. It does. It, it's very much has a delineated you stop playing one game and start playing the other. Whereas at least and get a reward based on how you did. Whereas
0: at least knowing the movie, there's it, 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 it sort of feels a little more contiguous. Okay. A little.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. All right, up next, I got some lighter fare. Um, we got a few rounds of Codenames Duet. I've been talking about that every week for, it feels like, a couple months now. I'll just say we're both still enjoying it, despite the fact that, man, we're re assassin crazy for the first few games the other day. We just, oh, we were, we were on the same page too much. I don't know. It was bad. Um, after Codenames, we grabbed Medium off the shelf, and the, um... What I need to share about Medium is don't ever, ever drop that game. Uh we talked about it in our review, the cards are very slippery. Uh, Combined with the fact that there's 15 different decks in that game, and the decks are delineated by very small numbers, uh, means you are going to spend a lot of time cleaning up that game. This is worse than a game of 52 card pickup. Uh, We know this firsthand. (laughs) Yeah. Other than that, I do have to say the game can be surprisingly fun and surprisingly blue, which is two players, especially after a couple adult beverages.
0: Yeah, I don't think too many people who've played that game would be surprised for it to go blue after some adult beverages.
1: Now, the other thing that I think fans of the show will find amusing is I found the secret to getting Deanna to play dexterity games, and that would be some local craft beer. I actually convinced her to play Mackie Stack, uh, sort of by her calling it out. Now, Mackie Stack is a game where you stack sushi um, using only two fingers because those are your chopsticks. And she was surprisingly good at it. Um, I played on our first game. We played the basic rules, which is, you know, standard chopsticks and I won. So then I penalized myself by using the baby fingers and she kicked my butt using that. So and I, all it takes is the right beer and we can get Deanna to play a dexterity game. And I have
0: to say, seeing that picture pop up on Twitter was, you know, the shock of the week, if not yeah. the pandemic, perhaps.
1: Oh, she's smiling too. <laughs> like, like she's happy. It was, it was great. At the time, I think I tweeted what beer it specifically took. There you go. She's like, she has no memory of this effect (laughs) now. So that leaves uh, one game. This is the one I think people wanted to hear the most about if they've been here since the start of the show, and thank you for sticking around. Uh, that leaves a big and epic game, uh, Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. I got my Kickstarter all in, except for the map version of this a couple weeks ago. Uh, it took a little while to get it to the table because I did have a component issue that they were happily enough happy enough to fix. Um, so first off, I do have to say it's our first play there this is a big game there's a lot going on and there is a lot more to experience in the game so like this is nowhere near final thoughts but here are some quick thoughts after one play man does this game take up a lot of room like eclipse took up a lot of room this takes up a ridiculous amount of room it's like you've got your your star map right your hex tiles like the board which is pretty big but not crazy it's all the other stuff like you've got a player board you've got player trays you've got two player trays you got your action cards you got the the central resources that you have are supposed to share like the dice and the orbitals and stuff and then you got the two different bags that you pull stuff out of and now there's this like nice ship part market which is really nice but it's this big plastic tray like i i don't think i own a game that takes up more room than this like this is crazy and that was with two players with two players we used half of a four by eight table Plus, actually, I think the box might have like, gone over partway to the other side, plus two side tables just to hold our player pieces.
0: Yeah, I was shocked when the photos of this one showed up for a completely different reason than the, than the last two yeah. photos. <laughs> um, I, I felt like I don't know what we would have done if I had been there to play. Um, but, it it it. I I would have been down on the on the other half of the table, walking over to look at the board to play or something. It's like just we were having to stand up to do yeah.
1: things. And this game plays six. I and yeah, I like mean, like like, where do you put all that stuff? You would need like you, you, know, you almost need like a player table and the board. Yeah, I mean, and people walk back and forth.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of side tables and a table as big as yours, really. I mean, you know, the boardroom yeah. table.
1: Like, you could do it. If you put the map in the middle of my table and everyone's on the edges, like, you, it, it's possible. But, man, like, I just didn't, like, this is the new streamlined edition. Yeah. I was, I was really surprised, I got to say. Now, the game itself, okay, supposedly they tweaked it and revised it and streamlined it. I couldn't tell you. I honestly have no idea. Um, when I backed this on Kickstarter, I sold my original copy. Probably a little soon, too soon, because I was itching to play it, and this got delayed a few times. Uh, but because of that, my memory's a little fuzzy. So I gotta admit, I don't remember exactly how it played, but it felt the same. Like, th- this felt like I was playing Eclipse. Um, I was trying to guess at what they changed. It didn't feel longer, shorter, or anything. But it, it they haven't changed the essence of what was Eclipse. I will say that uh, it probably was streamlined and probably did play better. I couldn't tell you either way.
0: Well, you know, it's good. I mean, people liked Eclipse and that's the reason why it got this. And so the fact that you're not noticing it not being Eclipse is, is yeah. only a good thing
1: no exactly it makes sense now i do have to say the new components are nice like really nice like they did some nice little touches right like the uv printing which is that reflective printing on all the space tiles and the miniatures wow like there's now instead of just having like before you had to buy an expansion pack just to get the miniatures for your own armies but now all the the npcs have miniatures the guardians the ancients uh your orbitals and monoliths are, are little things like the orbitals even hold the cube like they are really nice uh the custom dice are a nice touch they look nice instead of all like in the original game they're all just d6s of different colors now the dice indicate how much damage they do uh the player trays are really well designed like all of that i think is enough to want to buy the new version like even if even if they hadn't changed a single rule and just gave me the exact same stuff in a new box with shiny new bits i'd be tempted excellent Now, as for the actual game, so we played two players and I guess it was interesting. Like, this has never happened in Eclipse before, but I never played two players. Again, I have no idea if this has anything to do with Second Honor, the original Eclipse. We did not interact with each other at all. Like, by the end of the game, we couldn't get to each other. There was no way for me to fly one of my ships to her systems and no way for her to fly her ships to my systems. Like, that was weird. And also, neither of us built fleets. We didn't build ships. Like, until the last couple of rounds... We didn't use the modifier build actions at all. And then at the end, we built up like Deanna built up ships for absolutely no reason. She didn't do anything with them. I attacked one neutral system the entire game. There was one fight. In an entire game of Eclipse, we rolled dice once, which just felt kind of odd. Not bad, just odd. Now, I wouldn't say either of us had a bad time, but I gotta say, this is an epic 4X game, and I think for to feel like an epic 4X game, you need more than two people. So... I think to really enjoy Eclipse, I need a bigger group.
0: And a bigger table, apparently. (laughs) yeah. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming week? All right, so next week's our 100th
1: episode. Uh, I got a giveaway to put together. That's that's a big one because we're going to be giving away two games. Uh, As far as reviews, we are going to be looking at Jaws next week, uh, Final Thoughts, and Katana. And I plan in to try to get in a couple of those games each. Uh, Because like I said, at this point, I haven't quite... My mind's not completely made up. I'm, I'm still waiting for Katana to wow me with the uh, the full rules once we finally play it the right way. And Jaws, I need to I need to not play the shark at least once. We're hoping for a couple of those. And that who knows? I don't think Eclipse is going to happen again with more than two players for a while, but I would love to get that to the table again.
0: Now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our VIP guests. Our Patreon backers, we greatly appreciate your support. Andrew Dacey, thank you. Diane Tuzano, thanks ma misdirected mark join the mm team every tuesday night at 8 p.m eastern as they talk games and game mastering at twitch.com slash misdirected mark
1: evil john oh man the snacks you keep sharing all those snacks the man's snacks better than i eat
0: man wayne Humphrey. thanks wayne well that was the double bell
1: that means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock those front doors.
0: Though the doors to the lobby are closed, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop. one word. Drop by our website at TabletopBellhop.com for more gaming content.
1: Uh, if you like the content we're providing, please consider tipping the bellhop at Patreon.com TabletopBellhop.
0: Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers in YouTube at 2 a.m. every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us and be sure to stick around even if the stream goes down briefly and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game, game on. on graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG and co music is Nimbus by evening land. The podcast is released under a creative commons attribution license.